you see all this crap about how like Facebook is using people's two factor numbers to like basically spam them into more engagement. Yeah, it's awful. Like, why would you do that? And and you're literally <laughs> punishing people. You're punishing people for doing the right thing. Uh, if you think that the right thing is setting up two factor, which I, I actually think is sort of debatable, if this if one of the factors is your cell phone. Uh, yeah, it seemed like a good idea. At the time, it was first started, you know, being used like what almost ten years ago. Uh, but I think that's, <laughs> I think as we've seen, like security-wise, that's actually not that great, not as great as we think it is. No, um, you know, I'm gonna butcher his name, Mac J. Siglowski, the the pinboard guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was in town over the summer, I think, and we met up and. He sort of uh, he's sort of like thrown himself in head over heels into the world of like best practices for personal security, and he's doing it. He's he's uh, an activist for uh, a bunch of Democratic uh, candidates for Congress for this coming year. Uh, oh yeah, the great slate. I did yeah, the great slate. It's absolutely fantastic, including my uh, the the district that's my the home the home district where Amy and I grew up which is arguably literally in the entire country the single most gerrymandered congressional district in the country it's it's unbelievable if you grew up in the area like if you just look at the map it truly is is got these little tiny slivers that connect areas but if you grew up in the area like I did and think about how disparate um that the the areas are it's absolutely preposterous and anyway there's a great candidate that the great slate is running for there and i'm thinking about really putting some significant promotional effort into it on the daring fireball this year to get her uh elected anyway he came by and and you know he's, he's doing things with these democratic candidates to teach them like hey what's the best way to protect your email so that the you know russians can't get into your gmail like they did you know two years ago um and one of his big things, and I believe it, he totally convinced me, is go through, if you have a Google account, you you know, you could use Gmail as your Google account, not, you know, relatively safe. But if you use two-factor, get it off yourself. Don't, don't let Google know your cell phone. Just completely disconnect your cell phone from uh, your Google account. Because as soon as you hook up your cell phone as a, as a factor and two-factor, you're at the mercy of your carrier and the carriers are awful just awful somebody calls up and says hey i'm marco arment and uh i'm having trouble with my my cell phone uh you know all of a sudden they've got like a sim card with your phone number on it and then you know boom game over for like two-factor if they also know your email it's, it's really terrible it, it happens all the time yeah it's one of those things like you know the 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 foundation of that being secure was on the assumption that well nobody else can get my phone number except me obviously right but like i don't think people realize no, that's actually fairly easy for people to clone your phone number and start receiving things that are supposed to be going to your phone number. Right. And it's, you know, I mean, it's not quite as easy as going in with the name, but I mean, you don't need much information to go into your local AT&T or Verizon or whatever, T-Mobile and, and just have some, you know, $11 an hour clerk print up a SIM card. <laughs> and, all <of> a sudden, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there you go. I mean, it happens. It's really crazy. So anyway, get your, get your, think about that. Anyway. And anyway, that's so what Facebook has done is <laughs> they got people to sign up with two factor. And then the longer you go without signing in to Facebook, the more often they send you text messages <laughs> asking you. And it's so it's so stupidly passive aggressive. It's like they're like, are you having trouble signing in? 
<laughs> it's like, no, I haven't signed in. <laughs> yeah, they, it's worded as though, like, obviously, yeah. if you haven't signed in recently, there must be something wrong with your account. It's not yeah. that you don't want to sign into Facebook. <laughs> I, I, uh, I saw one guy who who got hit by this, and he tweeted that he he's texting, you know, he's getting these text messages, and he's trying, like, the those SMS bot interfaces. So he's trying things like stop... <laughs> I forget what else he tried. And then he went and checked and Facebook, I swear to God, posted his things that he texted back to the SMS bot. They posted him to his wall in Facebook. <laughs> so his wall's all filled like stop, yeah. opt out, unsubscribe. Yes, yeah. <laughs> That's in <all> amazing. <laughs> uh, it's interesting because, you know, famously or perhaps not famously, I've still never signed up for Facebook. I do have an Instagram account, though, so I don't know. You know, I don't know how it's I can't I can't claim any sort of, uh, you know, holiness in this regard. Um, but I never signed up for Facebook. Um, certainly, <laughs> as the years go on, it's it's looking like a better and better decision. It, it to me is reminiscent of my decision to never put comments on daring fireball. Like there, there were some early yeah. years where it seemed like, Hmm, maybe I'm missing out. I don't know. And then it certain it crossed a certain threshold and it was like dodged a bullet on that one. Um, yeah, you're playing the long game on Facebook. <laughs> it's like, you know, this is, you know, it, it, you're going to have like 10 years of people saying, how can you not be on Facebook? But you know, it's starting to appear like a reasonable choice recently. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, it, like Tiff, my, my, so, you know, my wife, Tiff deactivated her account on Facebook over a year ago, I think, and really hasn't missed anything. I have an account there, but I, I don't really ever use it for much of anything. And I, all I get is like, emails basically spamming me with like somebody commented on the overcast page you need to you you should really log in and read it and respond to increase your rate of whatever and then i I get you know emails from like estranged members of my family like look at their comments like i don't want to look at their comments (laughs) i'm not speaking to them (laughs) it's like and it's like all i get is like this is like you know either spam about engagement on my overcast page or like stuff with people that like facebook just doesn't get the hint that like I actually don't want to interact with some people. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, and, and you know, like I, I read something earlier on Twitter. I forget who it was. I'm sorry. But it was like, it was somebody who was saying like, you know, she, she's getting these spam text messages from Facebook. And it's, it's all about like her ex-boyfriend who like she, you know, it kind of hurts to hear about him. And, you know, it's like Facebook just doesn't, either they, they you know, their algorithms don't get it, which is certainly likely but also i think they just don't care you know they're they're shameless and they they will spam the crap out of everybody relentlessly because they know that you know it works for x percent of people to get you know x more page clicks and more engagement and they need to keep their numbers up because they're apparently bleeding users yeah that's the thing is that it's the I, I'm not going to say that they're in trouble or that they're to to bring out everybody's favorite classic Apple word beleaguered. Um, you know Doomed. they're they're you know they're making more money than ever. Um, you know, at, but that's really more that they're getting they're getting more efficient at getting more money per user, not that they're getting more users. Like logins in the U.S. are actually down for the first time, which if I were at Facebook would probably keep me up at night because I would. I, I would I would be very concerned about that. Isn't that actually also kind of what's happening to Apple? Like you know, basically, basically making making more money from users rather than growing the user base itself. That's very possible. Uh, I read an article today because I, I 
trying to write less and less about the financial stuff, and we can get into yeah, it. Honestly, a, I find it excruciatingly boring. <laughs> there's a there was a great Walt Mossberg tweet I'll probably get to later in the show, just about that focusing on the financial stuff is the wrong way to look at it. If you're really trying to, you know, like look at it from the cost, you know, is Apple making good products, which is really what I'm interested in. Um, but I read a thing that it was just some, you know, somebody was like, you should file this as claim chowder. And it was just some shitty Forbes columnist who's saying that, uh, um, Warren Buffett at uh, Berkshire Hathaway has upped his investment in Apple in the last year. And this guy was making the argument that that's a huge mistake. Uh, and that instead, if he wants to invest in a tech company, he should invest in Amazon. Um, and I, you know, I don't like to get into the investment type stuff, but I actually think that this guy maybe has a point because I kind of feel like Apple, if, if, if I were going to give investment advice, I think it's quite possible that Apple's growth is over. And or at least slowed down significantly. And this is his argument from the last two years that Apple's only grown at like six or seven percent the last two years, which is fine growth for a giant company or the biggest company in the world. But it's not, you know, if you want trying to be super aggressive with your investments, it's probably not. Whereas Amazon, who knows? I wouldn't. I, I don't know what the hell backs up their stock other than the fact that you know it's, it has nothing to do with profits. It has just to do with their the idea that whenever they get into something, they dominate. I think it's possible that Amazon stock could go up way more than Apple's in the next, say, two, three, four years. I don't know. But I think that I don't think that's a ridiculous argument. But anyway, I think the argument that Apple's sort of reached peak Apple is possible, at least in terms of reach. I mean, I mean, maybe not peak, but just like, yeah. you know, it's like they, they've transitioned, I think. I mean, granted, neither of us are financial analysts or really even experts in this field. But it does seem like they have transitioned from a growth company to a stable like long-term right. you know like right. a, like a high-risk stock to a low-risk stock basically right. um in the in the sense that like you know the, i don't expect them you know whatever their price is now i don't know 100 something i don't even follow it but like i don't expect it to be like 200 next year like yeah. that's like i don't i wouldn't expect that kind of growth anymore and you're just never you're never gonna so big you right know. You're just never going to see the sort of quarter over quarter, year over year, every single for for a whole series of years after the iPhone came out. It was every single quarter was twenty eight up twenty eight percent year over year, up thirty percent year over year, up fifty percent year over year, just quarter after quarter after quarter. Every single quarter of the year, year after year after year, were these insane, consistent growth numbers because the iPhone was growing insanely. But it, you know. I, you don't have to be a genius to to realize that the iPhone is it possibly never going to be replicated by any company in our lifetimes in terms of being a product that will be used by such an incredibly large percentage of the people who might reasonably buy one and sells for a relatively high price. You know what the average selling price now is up to eight hundred bucks. Uh, and gets replaced every two to three years by normal people. Like, there's no other product in the world like that. Yeah, I mean, especially now that now that the subsidy thing in the U.S. has largely shifted and and kind of gone away, or at least changed. Like the the price of the phones is more visible to people. Um, well, I guess I, I, maybe you could argue it isn't because now everyone's just paying on these monthly installment plans. But uh, but it, you know, it, it is it's remarkable that people find a way whether it's subsidized or you know parceled up by months or whatever it is that people are buying a, a brand new you know eight hundred dollar plus phone every one to three years in pretty large quantities like yeah. that's 
remarkable. Yeah, they just and, accept and it. Because, like, like, people never bought computers at that rate. Like, no. you know, even, even, like, even people like me who are like, you know, I'll buy lots of things because I like them and I like computers a lot. And I don't buy a new computer every, like, <laughs> every year. <laughs> now, wait a second. Well, if, that's I, if only you because Apple, that's only because Apple doesn't come <laughs> out with them frequently enough. You buy a new pro desktop as frequently as Apple comes out with them. No, that's not true. <laughs> I had I had my 2014 <laughs> iMac, the same one that you I think are still using. Yes, I had I bought that in 2014, and there were three other updates to it that I didn't buy well, before the iMac Pro came out. Hmm. I mean, they were minor updates, really. Yeah. But. Yeah. None of them have, have, have even vaguely tempted me. To be truthful, it was like changing changing a desktop is a pain in the ass. Like I don't want to have to change that very often. Oh, I hate it's, it. It's it's a big deal. And and again, and and you know the, when the when the gains to be had are fairly incremental, then it's it's kind of dumb to go through the expense and logistical crap of replacing your desktop every year when you're getting what a five percent increase in performance. Maybe like that's not yeah. enough to make that worth it. Yeah, and it's also. Uh I mean, I, this has been a recurrent theme on the show ever since I started it with uh, with old Dan back in the day. I mean, I, I just hate setting up a new Mac. Old Dan. Yeah. I just hate setting up a new Mac. I really do. I, I, I yeah. like – so I, I just – whether it's a desktop or a laptop, I just buy the best one I can afford, which, you know, now that I'm older is actually, like, the best one they make. So, like, the, the iMac – 5K iMac I bought in – what what was that, 2014 or 2015? Yep. 2014. I, I just got I, I I just bought the maximum everything. I <laughs> I just got the fastest yeah. i7 chip. I put what is it? 32 gigs of RAM. I just got 32 be 32. gigs of RAM, one terabyte SSD, one terabyte and SSD, Radeon something 290. I think Ooh, R90. Something. I don't know if I upgraded the video. I'd have to double check on. It that. was a small additional expense, and I I think I did it just because I didn't like I I upgraded everything else yeah. same as you, and I'm like I don't you know I don't want to regret this later, and yeah. so I did it. Although I, I didn't. On the iMac Pro, I'm now using, I didn't get the fancy GPU for that because, like, the number, it was like yeah. $600 more. And right. it wasn't, and I don't do anything with the GPU really. So I, I guess I got the base GPU. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, I'm, so back to the iPhone. There's just never going to be anything like that again. Or, or, or if there is, it, whatever it is, is unforeseen at this point. I, 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 I there's nothing on the market that's going to be like that. Uh, and so I just the, like the insane growth for Apple is over. The fact that they're sustaining it, the fact that like the numbers that I just linked to a thing today that um, for the first time ever, Apple, some some group, who knows if it's accurate or not, but some group said Apple took 51% of the revenue in the global smartphone market, which is insane for a product that sells for $800 on average and all competing devices sell for an average of 300 and Apple has 51% of the revenue. It's crazy. I mean, look, Apple is really good at making lots of money. Like they they are really good at that. You know that you can we can get into lots of debates and we probably will about things like, you know, competitiveness and market share in certain areas, but like they're really good at making money with whatever market share they have in something. Yeah. Uh that's very true. Uh, same thing with the watch, really. Yeah. Um, which is funny because the watch are coming at it a different way where there was a story this week that they sold more watches than the entire Swiss watch industry combined, I think, last quarter, not last year. But you know, the holiday quarter is a big one for watches because people get them as gifts. Um, and I think that they said that the average Swiss watch sells for something like $780. 
and the average selling price of an Apple Watch, uh, I think both by common sense and by Horace Deju's estimates, which have some actual factual analysis of Apple's uh, financials behind them, pegs it around like $330. And by common sense, I mean a $330 average selling price for Apple Watch means the average Apple Watch is the base model made out of aluminum. And yeah, because you figure like they probably sell more of the 42 size than 38 size. Right. And what does that cost? 300 for the 42 base Something model? Something like that, yeah. And, uh, you know, and yeah, it, so that and, makes sense. And, you know, whether or not you get it with the cellular or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's all centered around the base models. And the total number of people buying the stainless steel ones, let alone the edition, are so few that it hardly even moves hardly even nudges the average selling price and anecdotally from what i see on people's wrists that's exactly it and it's you know makes common sense for most people a 300 hundred dollar watch is a really expensive watch oh yeah especially one that you basically have to replace every two years or so yeah for right. its battery becomes useless right i, I mean wonder, is, it, is there going to be a battery gate for the watch <laughs> i wonder uh i hope not anecdotally, <laughs> i don't want to have to talk about that for six months <laughs> anecdotally it does seem like series zero watches like the original apple watch uh they're getting worse battery life like we got jonas one when it was brand new and uh he's worn it he's worn it you know pretty much every day uh or certainly like every school day you know ever since they came out and his battery life has gotten worse recently and I, i'm you know it makes sense it's you know what two and a half years of charge cycles of nightly charge cycles in. And I think the battery's worn out. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, like any, like as a developer, it's really hard to support the first gen Apple watch. And I think part of, I think a big thing holding back what watch OS can offer for developers, like API wise and, you know, backgrounding wise, things like my background audio uh, requests. I think a lot of that is being held back by the first generation watch hardware, but it's kind of, in, from that angle, it's not so nice if you have one, but it, it's kind of nice from that angle that like these watches are just really like becoming not very useful anymore in mass this year because the batteries are now so old in them that like they're they're not holding a charge throughout the whole day anymore hmm. for most people who have them. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I don't know if it's going to be a scandal or not. I don't know. It's hard to predict. Um, Probably not. I do feel like the first generation watch was so slow. Like, yeah. can you even tell if it's being throttled? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> it felt like maybe they just they just turned on throttling right out of, right out of the factory. <laughs> um, it's funny. I was thinking about that recently, and I was thinking about it in in we can get to it, but in in light of of the. The, the balance between shipping stuff on a schedule, shipping stuff uh, with a certain number of features, and shipping stuff with a certain quality level. That those three things, it's not, you know, you pick one, you, you've, you've, you want to balance all three. And I don't know, I kind of, I, the Apple Watch did ship late. I think a little bit later than even Apple hoped. I mean, there were reports that they were, that, that the year that they announced it, in September and even said, then it'll ship next year. And it didn't ship the next year until like May. And even then it was like six weeks back ordered for most people. Yeah. It was um, like immediately back ordered for most configurations right. uh, for uh, until it, like, it, I think it officially launched in April, but you couldn't really get a lot of the configurations until like June or July. Right. Uh, and it was a product that uh, 
by several accounts, Apple had been hoping until pretty late in the game that they might get out for the holidays the year before. And it came out as late as it did and really was sort of a subpar both software and hardware thing. I honestly, in hindsight, I, I'm, I'm in hindsight, I've been wondering, should they have waited another year? Should like what we now call the series one watch have been the original Apple watch? I kind of I see mean, why they did it. And, and the other factor you have to recall at the time is they were facing a, a daily battery of Apple's hasn't released anything new since Steve jobs died reports. Oh yeah, because like I, that was not that long after the uh, "can't innovate anymore" my ass thing. That was like right. what about a year later, yeah. and and you know because like that really was like that was the narrative back then was Apple can't innovate anymore. Samsung was doing all the innovation, and and you know and it turned out that was mostly about big phones. <laughs> it turns out Apple wasn't making big enough phones, and then they started making big enough phones, and everyone stopped talking about that. Um, so <laughs> that was kind of kind of BS. Turns out, uh, but. You know, I, the Apple Watch Series One or Series, the first generation Apple Watch, um, had so many problems with just like focus. You know, like the software was a disaster; it was a total mess. The third-party app implementation was horrible. Um, with like the watch kit, where like the everything was running on the phone and just kind of sent like basically drawing commands to the watch. Yeah. Um, that was and it was so slow. Almost nothing worked. Everything would time out or fail. Like it was, it was really rough. And then all of the, you know, marketing focus on things like they wanted you to like be browsing like news feeds on your watch right. and and all the stuff about like the like the digital touch sending people your heartbeat and doodling little pictures and poking your friends through their wrists. Like there was so much weird stuff in that first watch release that fortunately they've mostly moved past or mostly fixed um there's still some of that weirdness in the watch like you know like i I think the honeycomb screen is still terrible and and there's like digital at least digital touch stuff they like buried pretty well now (laughs) you don't usually find it um but it yeah i I, there's still like so much that about watch os that seems like it was made on a different planet than apple's other products i definitely think that they should have in hindsight Maybe they should have released it when they did as a product, and maybe it was useful enough, and maybe by releasing it when they did and getting feedback from real people that the subsequent watchOS 2, 3, and 4 were better than they would have been if they'd waited a year. They would have been a year behind on sort of zeroing in on, okay, notifications and fitness tracking. That's it. That's what this. That's what people like and use about this product. Um so I get being wrong about things like digital touch, you know, and was that a thing or not? But the one thing that they clearly should have known before they released it was that the original SDK was garbage. This is that this is this is yeah. Just in it it's the only time I can ever recall. And now it's, you know, it it's been a long time. I don't know however long I I the first review product I ever got from Apple was the Verizon iPhone 4. So I think that was 2010. So since 2010, yep. I've been getting products to review. And every time every time I've early gotten... Early 2011, I think. Maybe it was 2011. Maybe it was like... The 4S was fall of 2011, right before Steve died. So I believe that came out like yeah. in January or something. All right, right you're right then. So 2011. So seven years of me getting products from Apple to review. Um, and... 
every time I've every time I've gotten a product to review from Apple, and everybody I know who gets products to review from Apple, when you get it, they don't just ship it to you. You get a every once in a while. There's an exception, like um, with the MacBook Pros, the new MacBook Pros. Um, I I did have a briefing, but they didn't have there all are new the, MacBook Pros. <laughs> no, the last time when they came out with the with the Touch Bar ones. Uh, every time I've gotten a review product, I've had a product briefing with somebody from product marketing and somebody from Apple PR, either by myself or in a very small group, like say just me and Dalrymple together. Um, and you know, they they show you what they want to show you, and they take your questions, which is great. Um, but they never just give you the product in like like a PDF pamphlet or something like that. They want to tell you about it. Um, and like the exception I was going to say with the MacBook Pros is I had a product briefing, but they didn't give me like all of them. And then because they weren't ready yet. And so they did ship me like the 15 inch like a week later or something, something like that. So it's not like they're going to make you if they're going to give you two or three MacBook Pros to review. Oh, that's right. Yeah, like everyone only got the MacBook Escape to review right. for the first time. And then like the Touch Bar 15 right. came later. Right. So, yeah, exactly. So the Escape and, and there was a briefing where we could play with the Touch Bar, but they didn't have them for us to take with us. And so they shipped them to us a week later, but there was a briefing where we had the touch bar thing in front of us and could ask questions about it. Um, so it's, I, I would call that like the podcast equivalent of a footnote. <laughs> it's a minor <laughs> exception. Anyway, the only product I can ever re remember where the briefing was mostly apologizing for problems with the product was the original Apple watch. It was like, this is going to be slow. <laughs> Like even yeah, in the product briefing with a prepared Apple watch and their prepared demo, there were things, aspects of it that they were like, this is going to be slow. We're, you know, we're working on it. And it's just yeah, like, so like, unusual. Like in so many ways, it was, it was kind of the opposite of the first generation iPhone where like the first generation iPhone, it, it, it was, you know, similarly to the, to the watch, it had like extreme technical constraints to try to get an acceptable amount of processing power and battery life into something that size running this kind of advanced OS. Um, but with the original iPhone, they chose to basically have it do less, but have, have the things it does be executed very well. Yes, Whereas exactly. the, the first generation watch, and, and to this day, I think still kind of the entire watch, um, it's, it's not as bad now, but the first generation watch had the kind of the opposite approach of like, we're going to have this do a whole bunch of crap, even though we don't actually think it can do a lot of it very well, because we want to kind of see what sticks. And, and that was, it's a fundamentally different approach. And, and, you know, it's, it's easy for us to argue in hindsight, like, well, it turns out it's only used for, you know, notifications and fitness or whatever, you know, whatever the use case is. It's easy for us to look back on it now and say, launching that first SDK was almost certainly a mistake. Like it should have launched without third-party apps. Um, because it was clearly not able to handle third-party apps yet in in both hardware or software, um, so it should have launched that. But it's hard, like it, like thinking back, like it, it, when you're actually in the process of making these products, it's really hard to make the right call on that kind of thing every time. Like, do you support third-party apps or not? Like, and, and I think at some point during some interview, I think somebody asked Schiller about that. It might have been on your show at WBDC. I, I can't remember whether it was that or not, but it it, it seemed kind of like. Schiller, in 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 the the most verbose way that he ever will, said something along the lines of it was a hard decision, and maybe maybe we picked wrong on whether to, yeah. whether the, whether to ship with support for third party apps. Yeah, I don't remember if it was on my show or not, but I have terrible I podcast amnesia. But yeah, that sort of feels true, and in hindsight, that's sort of how I feel. And I 
they could have gotten away with the third party interaction with the watch could have been on that first version of the watch could have been entirely through the mirroring of notifications from your phone. Oh, yeah. And just well, and having, in fact, I think a lot of apps are actually doing that now. Yeah. Like a lot of apps are, are realizing now yeah. that actually just using rich notification functionality from the phone yep. provides a better overall watch experience than making a watch app. Yep. It's the only thing I ever use, honestly, other than playback controls for my AirPods, really. You know, it's, it's, it, I, I, and it would have been fine, I think, in the first year. Anyway, that's sort of a sidetrack. Um, while you're here, it's so funny, too, because I have other people on the show who have their own podcasts and I listen to them on their shows. But you're the only one, and possibly because ATP, and, and I'm not just here to butter your toast, but it's the only show I can think of where I, I try to listen to every episode. Um, so I listen to a lot of it. I keep thinking tonight that you sound like you're talking real slow. <laughs> <laughs> you sound the same way to me. <laughs> I just keep thinking, God, why is he so slow? Is, that, is he is it is he tired? And then I realize it's you know we don't have <laughs> we don't have, <laughs> wait. Smart speed is where it takes all the gaps in my sentences. Uh, what's the other feature? Yeah. Just speed up. Is there a name for that? Well, there's yeah. There's I mean variable playback speed. You know variable every podcast app offers that. Yeah. Right. So that, that's just literally speeding up all the audio by by a certain rate. And smart speed right. is what shortens the silences more than the surrounding audio. Yeah. But you know what? That's one reason why I I don't mind at the moment um, that I can't just tell HomePod to play something from Overcast. Like uh, I wrote about it in my HomePod review, but I I I tried out the built-in play a podcast thing you know you just tell it an episode of a podcast and it gets it from itunes library and it works pretty well uh, and there's too many podcasts that have ambiguous names including mine unfortunately um but although it kind of worked for for my show i don't know some people said that it say that it doesn't some people speaking of old dan some people say that when they try to get my show to play it plays like an old episode with me and dan benjamin uh i tried it with my show and it played the newest episode with Maltz or whoever it was um, but then other times it just plays, you know, like some other show that's called a talk show or something. Anyway, it works, but because I use overcast to, to follow the podcasts I listen to, I don't want to listen to anything outside it and then not have it be marked as red or, or for like long shows like ATP to keep my playback position for when I return. Yeah. So I just use, you know, and, and. The the nice thing about podcasts uh, is that unlike a song, which is only three minutes, three, four minutes, and if you're doing it by airplay, you've only got three minutes before the next thing is up, you know, uh, whereas a podcast, tell it to play an hour or two hour podcast. I don't care if, you know, because I can still talk to the HomePad and tell it to pause or play or something like that and it'll keep going but doing it with airplay through overcast i still like having the variable speed too like it's it, it it's ruined me really i can't listen to any kind of audio show like radio thing and not feel like they're talking too slow like even the morning <laughs> yeah. the morning news feature where you come down and you're making coffee and you're like hey home pod play you know tell me the news and it's like why do these people on npr talk so slow <laughs> What's really hard for me is watching YouTube videos because obviously like there's no audio manipulation going on there. Right. Although I, why they don't add 
a dynamics compressor to make everyone's volume high. I don't know. Why is that not an option in either production or playback? I have no idea. It's because YouTube volume levels are all over the place. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a huge problem that they should solve. Uh, but yeah, like it's really hard for me to watch YouTube videos because they just move so much more slowly than what I'm accustomed to hearing, which is podcasts with smart speed at like 1.25x. Yeah. So it's like it's it, it isn't a huge difference, but it's noticeable enough that it just every YouTube video to me seems really slow paced. Yep. Yep. It also doesn't help that nobody seems to edit. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we can get into YouTube later when we talk about their their Apple TV app. But anyway, I listen to your show. I, I am all a little curious though, like with the um, with the HomePod and podcasting, like. So, you know, I would love so much, and I've, I talk about this everywhere, so I'm not going to dwell on it too long, but I would love so much for there to be an audio Siri intent, which would also enable things yeah. like Spotify. Um, but yeah. just, you know, to be able to tell, you know, hey, Dingus, play, you know, play the, play the latest episode of the talk show in Overcast. You know, the same way you can, sit, you can tell Siri to add things to, to your to-do list in other apps, so in things, in OmniFocus. You know, you can, you, can, you can use other app names for certain intents, and they work pretty well. Um, so I would love to have that kind of thing with with Siri, you know, just to have an audio intent. The the main challenge to this I see is, I guess, twofold. One is like you have to build some kind of like indexing interface so that so that the audio app can provide Siri with a list of what content is available in it. And for something like Overcast, that is fairly easy because you like if you limit it to only things that you already subscribe to in the app that might only be you know between two and 30 entries for most people um but for th- something like spotify it's like well are you going to ask spotify for all the music that they have like that's that's a bit of a challenge to to implement that and you know maybe they don't want to tell you all the music they have so there's there's you know challenges there so that's why I think they probably haven't done something like this. Um, but another thing is like, and this is kind of a bigger problem I think with the HomePod, is that Siri is still very device specific with with what you're asking it um, when it comes to those APIs. You know, Siri ha- or like the HomePod has a built-in Apple Music client, so it can directly query Apple Music with no phone nearby, and it can it can you know get songs and things from Apple Music and, and from the podcast directory. Um, but if they built something. If they built like the the Siri audio intent that would allow Overcast and and Spotify and things like that, if they built it the way that these things are built so far, they're only running on the phone, and so that phone would have to be nearby right. for it to say, "Hey, phone, play this thing," and the phone would have to you know look at its own locally stored index of what's available, and then tell the HomePod, "Okay, play this thing." Right. And doing it that way would provide something like, well, maybe would provide something like smart speed um, because, you know, if the app is just running on the phone and the Siri command just tells it what to play and pre-configures the AirPlay output to say send to the HomePod, that's great. But a much more powerful way to do this is the way that I think all of the other assistants work and the way Sonos works, which is – and Google's um, Chromecast uh, protocol or casting protocol is – the, the is like you know if if you have some kind of you know skill or integration with the voice assistant you tell it play this thing on overcast and it queries overcast's web service right and doesn't involve any phones or ipads at all it queries the web service and the web service tells it here's a url start playing this url and it fetches that and plays it without the involvement of phones that is a much more versatile and resilient way to do things 
but that's not how Siri Kit works right now at all. Right. And when you're just, you're just talking about Siri on the phones and on the iPad and on the watch, that's kind of okay, although it does limit the watch over LTE. But that, that's over, otherwise, that's, that's kind of okay. Uh, but now that you have the HomePod, it, it kind of raises the question, like, is that the right design for this? And, and you know, would they be better off doing something that's more web service based? But honestly, I, I don't think I see Apple doing that or being good at that. It just seems outside their DNA. It's like they're so yeah. app-centric. You know, I, I don't think that the reason that it, this thing comes out of the box not being able to support Spotify, I really don't think it's pure competitive spite. You know, like, screw Spotify. We want everybody to sign up for Apple Music, so we're only going to support Apple Music. I think it's way more complex than that. I think that it's entirely possible that they want, like what you said, an audio intent for Siri Kit that would let, like, Overcast hook up to it and would let somebody like Spotify hook up to it if they wanted to through the phone app and only work when the phone is at home on the network. Um, I don't see them, but like most of these other devices and I'm a bit of a rube when it comes to Spotify, but I've learned since HomePod came out, um, you know, that what's it called? Spotify connect or something is the name of their cast. Like yeah, service. that sounds awesome. Right. But it's like you said, it is, it, it's driven by the truth is, you know, to, as, as Steve Jobs said, the truth is in the cloud. And so right. you can give the direction from your phone and the direction goes from the Spotify phone app to Spotify server. And the direction is play whatever playlist and play it on my kitchen speaker. And the server says, okay, and then pings your kitchen speaker, which is already signed into your account and says, yeah, like you said, here, play this URL. And then it plays. And so it's going from whatever device you issued the directive on to Spotify in the cloud, from Spotify in the cloud to whatever device that is, which might be the same device, you know, could just come right back, but right. then it, it plays And then right from there. that point forward, once the playback has started, right. the, the, the source device is not involved. Right. But I don't see Apple. I, I, I don't blame Apple at all for not 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 supporting Spotify's own proprietary, you know, uh, connection thing. You know, it's oh, not yeah. Yeah, it's not just as much. It's not simple. We're not going to let any third party third party audio play at all. It's, you know, uh, so I could see them adding support for this. And I don't know if Spotify would do it, though, if it's not Spotify Connect. Who knows? I, I, yeah, I mean, ultimately, like I, I, I don't know what Apple's strategy here is, but I think they could sell a lot more of these probably high profit three hundred and fifty dollars speakers, and presumably there's probably going to be more than one HomePod model in the future, so they could probably sell many different items in the family of HomePods. You know, selling a lot of high profit hardware hmm. um, if they if they covered more use cases and supported more. Uh, third-party services yeah. and and i and i would imagine you know while there is a lot of long-term strategic value to boosting apple music apple music itself is probably not much of a money maker you know music streaming is is famously unprofitable as yeah. spotify knows very well um <laughs> so it like it, it i would imagine apple is probably better suited making sure their hardware sells really well uh, rather than trying to artificially hamper the hardware sales to boost an unprofitable web service. That doesn't really sound like Apple. Well, anyway, we can keep talking about HomePod in a minute, but I want to take a break here. Um, but I, it reminded me that when you, with you on the show, and I just, I've been meaning to say this on the show 
Uh, I just posted on Daring Fireball yesterday about sponsorships and sponsoring a podcast in particular that I never, the podcast has, has been doing, my podcast has been doing well. Um, I, I think ATP has been doing well. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots of shows. You guys do 52 shows a year, which is nuts, but uh, lots of shows, three sponsors a week, and, and it's great, and I'm very happy about it. And I love all the sponsors that have come back. I, I love sponsors that have been with me for years, and I, it, I, I like it because it seems to me like validation that it actually works, that paying money for me to tell you about such and such company. And then years later, they're still sponsoring an episode, one episode a month or even more than that shows that they must be getting good results. So that's great. But then I never have to, I, I don't have to pimp it for lack of a better word. I never say, Hey, you know, like if you have a, an app or a service or you work at a company where you think like their thing would do well with the talk show or daring fireball audience, you should think about sponsoring the show. And I almost, I, I, in the back of my head, I think that I've, it, I've got a lack of variety on the sponsors on the podcast that, and I think duh, because I never tell anybody that, <laughs> that you can sponsor it because I don't have to. And so I'm taking a moment here before, uh, I introduce our first sponsor who happens to be a new sponsor, which is very cool. Um, but just to you, the listener to think about it, if you've got an app or something like that, the, the rates for the, the podcast are less than half the rate to sponsor the weekly sponsorship thing at Daring Fireball. So it's more affordable. Uh, it is a, to me, I think a terrific audience, uh, and just to me, just to sell it, the number of sponsors who come back over and over again is sort of my proof that it's a pretty good, effective way of spending your ad money. And the other thing, too, that I run into both with, with the podcast and when I, I sell the weekly sponsorships in particular is that a lot of, you know, the sort of indie type companies that sponsor it, it the whole idea of buying ads is new to you and therefore weird. Um you know, like, uh, just to name a company, like Squarespace knows how to buy ads. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty good at it. Right. Uh, you know, and, and it can be scary to say, I'm going to spend a couple thousand bucks to sponsor a podcast. I get it. Um, but, you know, if you've ever been thinking about it, seriously, it's not hard. And you can just go to, uh, for me, I, I the landing page for me, if you're interested, uh, is at neat. N-E-A-T dot F-M. That's Jesse Char, uh, who handles booking the, the, the spots here um, because I'm too disorganized to, to keep that together. Um, but she's very nice, and you can go there. And um, I think at least through the end of March, I think you guys are doing the same thing. But for new sponsors, if you've never yep. sponsored a show, we're offering a discount. Um, and I would love to have some new sponsors just for variety's sake. Not yeah, same deal with ATP and yeah. through the same site, through the same nice person, Jesse Char, and uh, yeah, it's and and what I would say is, podcast listeners, like you know, just business wise, how you're going to spend your money, podcast listeners are a little bit expensive to get relative to other listeners. CPM because right. we are so valuable, right? And so where this pays off is if you stand to make more than a couple bucks per new customer. So, like, I actually don't recommend it. Like, we, we occasionally get, you know, inquiries from people who are, like, selling apps for, you know, $3 yep. on the, on iOS. And, and I actually tell them, you probably shouldn't do this. I do, too. Um, because uh, right. cause that, like, where, where podcast really pays off is, like, podcasts have, an, especially our podcast, because we are so awesome, have an audience of people who are willing to spend good money for good products. 
and and so that that's why like you know you have something like Squarespace because this is like a nice web hosting platform and the value of a customer to Squarespace is probably in the you know hundreds of dollars over time range. You know if, if you're buying like a nice mattress from our friends at Casper, like you know you're 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 spending like eight hundred dollars on a mattress. You know like that like they you know basically it we our audiences are willing to pay for good stuff. So if you're selling something where where you stand to make like you know thirty bucks per customer, let's talk. If you're only gonna if if the most you can make from somebody is like a dollar from from like the app store, that's probably not a good fit. Right. Like there's lots of businesses where this is a good fit. Things like subscriptions and you know nice priced items, like nice things, uh, and and for that you know please contact us. Yeah, uh, I completely agree, and I've done the same thing with like two or three dollar apps or somebody who just came out with a they have a it's pretty cool puzzle game uh i don't even play games on my phone but i kind of this one sucked me in for at least 20 minutes um but at three bucks a pop and if you really are hoping that you're going to multiply that by whatever number to at least break even it's probably not going to happen like you're going to sell some copies of the app, but it's probably going to leave you in the red. And it may not, in the long run, help you get in the black because it's it's just not that type of thing. So I do the same thing. I, I never, ever, ever, and hopefully I've never, in all the years I've been selling sponsorships and ads, I've never taken a dollar from somebody who I thought, like, ooh, they shouldn't be spending this. Yeah. I'm... <laughs> I sleep like a baby every night, so I'm by exactly uh, on a Casper mattress on a right, hollow pillow. Right. <laughs> by by certain standards, I am a terrible businessman because that's there's you know I don't think there's any salespeople who who listen to our shows, but if somebody out there is like a professional <laughs> car salesman or something like that, they're they're like, what the hell are you talking about? Somebody wants to spend money and you tell them not to buy your thing, but I you know I would rather well, sleep. It's also, well, I think it's. I think it's also like good long term business of yeah. like if you take someone's money knowing they're gonna not see a return on that right. um that you know then maybe down the road if they were gonna buy something like if they're selling something down the road that could benefit from it or they could make money from it, they're gonna be less likely to go to you or if right. they tell a friend they're gonna be less likely to re- to recommend you or they're gonna actually trash you or right. the idea of podcast advertising right. to their friends or their company or whatever right. else like it's 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 not good long term business. To right. take people's money, knowing that you're kind of burning them, right? Exactly. Like it could show up on a Quora th- form thread a year later, where somebody would be like, "Hey, is sponsoring uh, the talk show a good idea?" Yeah. And somebody would be like, "Yeah, I spent a couple thousand dollars and got twenty dollars in sales." <laughs> yeah. No, it's or terrible. They could, or like you know, they could go work for an ad agency, right? Who, who who like is you know somebody some client asked them, "Hey, should we be buying podcast ads?" And they'll say, "Oh no, they're a terrible deal." Like right. it's it's much better to actually like keep people happy and not take their money when you know that they're not going to see a return. Yeah. Well, anyway, our first sponsor this week is a new sponsor, and I, <laughs> I cannot do the I can't do the read right now. It is a company called Trace Pontas. Trace Pontas, they're a Brazilian company, and they sell coffee and olive oil, which is the most intriguing mix of products I've ever seen from a company. And tomorrow, I'm getting by FedEx uh, some of their coffee, and I'm going to make it, and I'm going to, and then I'm going to through the magic of editing, I'm going to jump in right around right here. And I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to cheat you. Uh, Marco and I are recording on Thursday night. <laughs> but on Friday, I'm going to jump in here with a recording, and I'm going to tell you what their coffee tastes like. Okay. 
This is uh, Next Day John Gruber. Uh, I'm recording this about 12 hours after the show last night with Marco. Uh, I got my shipment of Tres Pontas coffee this morning. Uh, they sent me their Catue. I don't know, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of that. It's Portuguese. C-A-T-U-A-I. And they sent it to me in four roasts. Light, medium, dark, and French roast. I've had two pots of this coffee. I've made two for some A-B testing with the dark roast, the light roast. It's excellent coffee. I love it. Uh, I've drank way too much of it, <laughs> quite frankly. It's really good. I think I prefer the light roast. I uh, did, did a lot of A-B testing between the light and the dark. Um, I guess I'll do medium and French tomorrow. Um, it's really good stuff. So here's the deal. Trace Pontas Coffee. You've probably heard of single origin coffee. Well, uh, Trace Pontas Coffee is it takes it to a new level. It's single farm coffee. Um, all of it comes from the race, R-E-I-S, race family farm, uh, just underneath the peaks of the Trace Pontas Mountains in Brazil. Uh, for over a hundred years and three generations, the race family has been growing some of the best coffee in Brazil. Previously, they only sold it to local roasters. Recently, they've only recently started, uh, exporting it here to the United States. And so this is a new product that you really couldn't get before and you can get it now. And it's just excellent. Um, you have two ways to find out more information and to order it. You can go to their website, tracepontas.com, T-R-E-S-P-O-N-T-A-S.com slash coffee. Uh, you can find out all sorts of more information about their coffee. You can order it right there. And when you order their coffee, that's when they roast it. And then they ship it to you immediately. The coffee I got, it's stamped. It was roasted yesterday, which is insane. Um, but getting fresh roasted coffee is probably the number one way that you can up your coffee game. Just about any coffee you get in a grocery store, even a quote-unquote gourmet store that's been sitting on shelves, uh, even for just a couple of weeks, loses freshness. Coffee is a, a – roasted coffee is 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 a commodity that goes uh, – just loses its flavor quickly. Fresh roasted coffee really does make a difference. And Trace Pontas coffee only gets roasted once you order it. The other thing you can do is you can go to Amazon. This is so much easier if you just want to try it. Go to Amazon and search for Trace Pontas, um, T-R-E-S-P-O-N-T-I-S, and their coffee will be the first thing you see. And when you buy on Amazon, your coffee will still be roasted fresh to order and shipped out from Trace Pontas right away. When you get it from Amazon, it's not like it's sitting pre-bagged in warehouses or something like that. It's just a front end. The order goes through to Trace Pontas. They roast the coffee, and they ship it to you. You can get it um, in any one of those four roasts, light, medium, dark French roast, and you can get it pre-ground or whole bean. I recommend whole bean, quite frankly. Um, and all orders enjoy free shipping regardless of where you order it. I don't, uh, that, I don't, that seems too good to be true. The other thing you can do if you get it, you like it, you want to get more is you can sign up for a coffee subscription from Trace Pontas and get roasted beans sent to you every one, two or four weeks, your choice. And when you sign up for a coffee subscription, you save 10% off every bag of coffee. Now here's the really good deal. Listeners of the talk show can get an extra 10% off using the code, the talk show with the, the at checkout when you buy a coffee subscription. This means you get a total of 20% off every bag of coffee in your subscription in perpetuity with that code. Just remember to enter the code at checkout, the talk show, when you sign up for a subscription. So my thanks to Trace Pontas for sponsoring the show and for sending me this excellent coffee to sample. Now now we're back. We're back after my, my magically inserted uh, uh, review of Trace Pontas 
coffee. I do know one thing about their coffee. I do know how I'm going to grind it. And that will be with, I, what's the name of the thing I have, Marco? The Barazza Virtuoso. The, the Bar- only grinder you should have. The Barazza Virtuoso. This is this was a, a source of conflict in our friendship for years and years because I had uh, <laughs> I had a piece of crap burr well no no a burr grinder is what i have now i just had like it was just yeah, like a little you know, the, the spinning blade kind yeah a little like spinning the, the kind pro- that everybody has a yeah. little spinning propeller from uh kitchen aid i believe um for years and i said well what should i buy and then you told me what to buy and i figured out how big it was and it literally like wouldn't fit in our old kitchen but now we have a new kitchen and it's a much bigger kitchen and i have a uh i it's so big that i have my own cubby hole where i'm allowed to put stuff <laughs> <laughs> so I have, I have the Barazza, the Barazza Virtuoso, Virtuoso. and I, I like it. I like it every day. I, I don't know. I still remember it, it, you gave me one of my favorite compliments of all time. Uh, at, when, I, when, when I visited you in your old kitchen and your old place a few years back, and I brought some of, the, some of my own coffee that I roasted. And, oh, no, 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 it wasn't even that. It was when I mailed it to you at some point. Oh, yeah. And you told me after you tried it, uh, you said... I almost want to say, fuck you, this is so good. <laughs> I was just like, so, so perfect. And there's been times in my life where I have said that now to other people about things because it's just so, it's so perfect. <laughs> it was good coffee. It was very good coffee, I have to admit. Uh, I don't know that I could, uh, I could Pepsi challenge the difference between coffee, fresh ground coffee ground with the Barazza Virtuoso with the versus the old crappy grinder that I used to have. I'm, I think I probably could. I do feel that on a daily basis, I'm, I'm, I'm giving my coffee more, more B's and A's and less fewer C's and B's in terms of how good I think it tastes. <laughs> I don't know how much of it's due to that, but I, you know, but it, it just works better. I like that. I can just set the dial and walk away. Um, and the way that it cuts it up, it, even if it doesn't taste better, it's a much neater grind for pear. I, I do pour over almost every day. But even when I make, um, I think I use a finer, I, I always have to look it up. I think I use a finer grind for the uh, the plunger thing, the AeroPress. Yeah, AeroPress. Yeah, you um, should. But the AeroPress, you should be setting that dial to roughly like... 10 like, like, i think the, I do the dial goes like yeah. zero to 40 yeah and yeah for the air press it should be around 10 i do like 12 and i do 20 for pour over um yeah it's about right uh but it's a but the bigger difference whether it tastes better or not is it's way neater like it it take comes right out of that little plastic thing and there's just a couple of little like sh- like pieces of the husk that are sort of floaters you know but the they chaff, yeah right but they they clean up real easy just like one swipe with a wet wet towel and they're, they're yeah, most of that's counter. just static but there's no dust it's not like dust like the old yeah. grinder well it's also it's it's much it's a much more consistent grind size like yes. the, the grains that come out are much more yep. consistent size like like the the problem with the spinning blade grinders is you know it's kind of similar to if you ever use a food processor or a blender like yeah. you, you know you you try to blend something that's like a little bit thick or chunky like you know like vegetables or a smoothie or something and like you know the part near the blade gets totally pureed and then the stuff around the edges that just kind of sticks to the walls just kind of gets all stays all clumpy and everything it doesn't doesn't get blended so you have this huge variety between like the stuff in the middle which is super finely blended yep. and the stuff on the outside which is really not that's what a blade grinder does to coffee like so you have some of the of the grounds that are really finely ground 
and some that are really coarse. And yep. depending on on how you're brewing it, this may matter or it may not. Um, typically, like the the pour over or drip methods are pretty forgiving of grind size. Aeropress is and French press are really not like right. <laughs> for, for French press. You want them to be really big so yep. they don't seep through the filter. And for Aeropress, you want them to be really small because one of the great advantages of the Aeropress over any other method is that you can have a really fine grind and get tons of dense flavor packed into a small amount of liquid without having all the grounds seep through the filter. Yeah. Um, I tried French press years ago when I first started getting even semi-serious about coffee. And I, I think compared to you who roast your own beans, I still can only say I'm semi-serious about it. Uh, way more serious than anybody else in my family and way less serious than a lot of people. Um, but I thought, way, well... I'm way less serious than a lot of I people. Know, like, the way I roast is pretty casual. Like I don't get into like you know custom roasting profiles and tweaking the temperatures just right to like during the roast to get these right curves. Like, I don't I don't do any of that. I do, I basically do like the stock preset on the roaster yeah. of how to roast, and I, and I just decide like how far do I go before I stop it. That's it. That's the only decision I make. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I do think though uh, I did try French press years ago. And I fucking hated it. I, I was because, it, but it was because I it was too much of the coffee was getting into the the you know the 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 beverage. Yeah, because you had the wrong grinder. <laughs> right, I had the wrong grinder, and I was I mean, like, French uh, press can be amazing. It's it, the it's mainly the reason that I don't like it are mainly that it's a pain in the butt to clean, which everyone has this problem. Yep, um, and and also that. I prefer the like AeroPress gives like a, a little bit stronger of a flavor, and I just prefer that. But yeah. French press is also very good, very respectable. If I'm at like a restaurant that has some kind of like nice coffee as a French press option that you can like order after the meal, I'll sometimes yeah. do that and share it with somebody because it's it's it is kind of nice. Yeah, but it definitely has to be ground right. Otherwise, it's like you're drinking oh yeah mud. Um, oh, I had one other coffee related thing. Oh, I know. Uh, Everybody had always told me for years, and, and I believe it, but like the, the optimal water temperature for pour over is, um, I don't know, like 185 degrees Fahrenheit, somewhere around there. Depends uh, who you ask. Uh, yeah, I guess it depends who you ask, but definitely not 212. Um, that's, right. Although it, a lot of a lot of like coffee pros think it actually isn't that far off 212. Like, like I, I think. I forget what the what the SCAA, the Specialty Coffee Association of America, they have like a bunch of standards. I think their temperature is two hundred four, hmm. so like it doesn't need to be that much off. So like I, I, like I use an I use an electric kettle, right. and it has presets for basically every ten degrees, and I I use the two hundred preset, and it's fine. So I don't have an electric kettle, and I don't feel like I you know I I do have my own cubby hole, but I'm running <laughs> I'm running out of space in there with that in the soda stream. Um, <laughs> so I just trust me. I was an electric kettle skeptic for a long time, and and what happened basically like my favorite glass kettle uh, finally broke. The one so that somebody the one that broke it. I did <laughs> the aerial printing. The aerial printing. <laughs> yes, I called it the Helvetica kettle for years, right. being friends with you, and I later learned that it was actually printed in aerial. Right. And the, and the problem was that if you get the same kettle, it's the Medelco like glass kettle, and and the problem is if you get it after a few years ago. They changed the font that it's printed, in, and it's now printed in something that looks kind of like italic Comic Sans. Like it's <laughs> it's completely the opposite of what you'd want. Wait, what's and, it called? And so it's Medelco, and it's like just like the Medelco glass kettle. It's like twelve bucks, 
and uh, and like and and the, the, and the picture on Amazon did not reflect the font change for a long time. I don't know if it does now. <laughs> Let me see. <laughs> I don't know. Hold on. Uh, no, I don't no, think it's so. Still, well, no, there's two. So see here. So this is. <laughs> so there, there are two that like. It, there's one that still shows the old font, and uh, it, it's M E D E L C O. If you search for Medelco Kettle. Uh, one still shows the old font, and right next to it is one that shows the new oh, one. Oh, like I do comic see sense. the new. Oh my god, that you is see? worse. It's it's as though somebody at that company <laughs> who doesn't does not see the difference between Helvetica and and Ariel, and enough people like me wrote to them to complain, and they were like, "Oh yeah, you want to complain <laughs> about the font? Fuck you, buddy. Here you go." Exactly. So it went from almost Helvetica to to knock Comic off, Sans knock off Comic Sans. It's not even. It, it would be better <laughs> if it was actually Comic Sans. There might, it might be some because, like, if you look at where it says twelve cup capacity, that looks almost exactly like Comic Sans. Ooh, It'll, it almost looks like it's doing a fake italic where it's just slanting yeah. the text. Who knows? Or maybe but, I just but where don't it says know. Whistling kettle looks correct. Yeah, maybe like, that I, looks like an actual italic. Maybe I don't know what <laughs> Comic Sans italic is. Maybe that's just Comic Sans italic. I'm sorry. Oh, the problem is like imagine so like you know oh imagine my God. Like, even the numbers if you even, order the aerial <laughs> even the numbers are in Comic Sans. It's amazing. It's like who who would want this? <laughs> That's so funny though because I literally did not buy it even though you said that you recommended it. I literally didn't buy it years ago because it was printed in Arial and now they've done this. <laughs> It's so much worse now. Oh, my God. So anyway, yeah, anyway gotta... so I've, I've since moved on to – because, yeah, when, when that broke, I knew I couldn't get a new one. And so I, I, I dug out an electric kettle I, I had bought a while ago for a camping trip. And we've been using that since. And, it, it, like, Europeans laugh at me whenever I would say, like, oh, I boil things in the kettle. They're like, wait, what? Like, on, the, on your stove? What are you doing? Like, that's barbaric. Because, like, most of the rest of the world has figured out by now that electric kettles are way better at boiling things – boiling water for coffee and tea. Um, Why? You know, we are the only – First of all, they're way faster. Oh, I don't know Second about that. All, I got it. We have a new range, and I'll tell you what that it, that fucker boils water fast. I, I, yeah, because yeah, you probably you have induction, right? That, that's pretty crazy. Um, no, well, but, we do have induction, but I just boil it right over a big old gas flame. Oh, so, so you have gas? Okay, yeah, yeah. we have so, gas. So we we also have a really like heavy duty gas stove, and so it would boil pretty fast in the aerial kettle, but uh, it it's. Almost as it's it's either the same speed or it's faster in the electric kettle. It's it's super fast in electric because they just draw tons of power and are pretty efficient at converting that to heat. And then um, what's nice about it is that first of all, you can set it to a certain temperature and have it hold it at that temperature, which mm. is very nice. Especially like if you're doing something that's not a full boil, um, like if you're doing like green tea, green right. tea has to be like you know 170, 175. Like you don't want it to be any hotter than that. Right. And it's always kind of a pain to do that with a, with a kettle on the stove, right? Or if you're um, half, so you can halfway hold it certain temperatures, if you're halfway through making coffee and get interrupted because the UPS guy shows up or right. something. Right, exactly. It can also like hold it at a certain temperature for like a half hour. So mm-hmm. if you're like, if you want to like just start it while you like prepare everything else, by the time you're done like assembling the AeroPress and you know grinding up the coffee and everything, it's boiling, it's ready, you know, and it's holding it at the temperature you requested. So that's really nice. It also just boils it, you know, it's really fast. It holds a ton of water. You, the one I have holds like one and a half liters at once. Um, so if you're making a lot, it's great. If you're making back to back, it's great. And then finally. You can do it in a different part of the kitchen. You're not taking up a burner on the stove. So what I found is it 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 allowed me to like 
compact my coffee preparation area from like this big triangle that like spanned from the cabinet to the stove to the sink that was basically like my whole kitchen now i can do it like all in this one little countertop next to the sink because it's all like i'm able to have it wherever i want so that part's nice too and also it just saves wear and tear out of my stupid gas burners that break constantly never get a viking stove or a house that has a viking stove already in it (sighs) (laughs) so go electric it's it's it seems a little weird for like the first day and then you're like how did i ever use the stove every day like an ape well where do you put it where i mean it's just like on a countertop yeah, you basically uh, put it where you make your coffee. No way. Like, yeah. I, I like Because you already have a grinder plug in, so put it next to your grinder. Nah, uh, I don't have room for it over there. No, I like cooking. you have like four sinks in there? Ah, uh, two sinks. And there's no, but there's <laughs> yes. no room by my sink. Uh, no, I figured out in my optimal solution <laughs> is I pour, I put just the right amount of coffee in, in the kettle. I put it on the high, high flame. And then as I grind the coffee, and get it prepared by the time I'm ready for it, it's boiling. And then I, then here's my trick. My trick is, and I go over and, um, um, I get two ice cubes and throw two ice cubes in and it immediately turns the two twelve water into a, a better temperature, which I have measured precisely with my, uh, thermopem. And it's like exactly like one eighty eight or one ninety or something. All right, that's that's. I mean, as long as you can do that in like a repetitive way, which it sounds like you can, then yeah. that's fine, I guess. Yeah. I don't uh, even. But, I'm not even fully awake, and I've got the ice cubes in my hand, ready to toss them in. And I don't it's know. A lot easier to just hit a button that says 185 uh, and just move on. I don't know. To me, there's something cool about throwing uh, throwing ice cubes into boiling water. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, where were we? We were talking about HomePod. How about this thing with the HomePod leaving rings on people's furniture? I, I I've, I'm astounded by this. I, I it's, really it's, am. It just seems, yeah. I don't like. It, it's do not. You know a, how, do you know how much fucking trouble I would be in if? <laughs> oh yeah. It, like we've got. Uh, I don't even know what material they are, but there's some kind of stone type material. There are countertops in the kitchen. I, I you know, they're not marble, but they're some marble-like material that we... Or either granite or quartz. Yeah, one of those. And it might, I forget, but it's something like that. And, uh, you know, meticulously picked out, uh, uh, you know, some input by me, but, you know, the, the whole thing was designed by Amy. Um, and, I mean, you've been there, you've seen it. It's a really nice... It's, she did good work. It's it's a yeah, really, it's really nicely nice. designed kitchen. If I'll t- And that's where I set up the HomePod. And uh, when I first got the review, unit, I'll tell you what, if I left a fucking ring on that counter from that HomePod, do oh, you have any much... I, dead. I, I would be fucking dead. I, I cannot... I, I mean... Would, she would literally kill you. We would not be doing this podcast right, right. now. Right. I mean... Literally killed. I, I, and I realize it doesn't leave rings on that material, thank, thank God, but... Uh, you know, I, I've seen pictures of some of the people like who've had it on, you know, the, the, the tables and, and shelves that, that they've left these rings on. They all seem like perfectly reasonable places to put a home pod. Yeah. Well, and, and you know what's a really popular countertop material? Butcher block oiled wood. Right, exactly. <laughs> really popular. Right. And that's just <laughs> it, is that in some alternate universe, you know, it, I could very easily imagine that that would have been the direction we would have gone. You know, it. it Maybe if I picked, it would have been the direction we would have gone. I, I, you know, I've been in, you know, new kitchens that, or, or even old kitchens, but you know, nice kitchens that have that type of material. Uh, I could totally see it. I, 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 that's it's just crazy to me that that 
that product didn't ship with a, um, I mean, if, if there's some kind of thing that that's, that, that's the way to go with the silicon material at the base. And I realize there's an acoustic component to that, right? That this, that the home pod, the way that it shoots audio in all directions, including down, um, that the material and how it rests on the thing it's sitting on has some kind of an effect on that. And there might, there might be that they were well aware of this and went with it anyway. But the fact that it didn't ship with a discrete warning about it along the lines of the way that they said like, Hey, if you buy the jet black iPhone seven, it's going to pick up scratches, all micro abrasions or whatever they called them all over the back, you know, just let people know. Yeah, like like the 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 iPhone seven micro abrasion thing, I think was the is the best parallel to like how this should have gone. Like assuming that assuming that they didn't want to or weren't able to change the material before this thing shipped, which that's a big assumption. I think they probably should have found this during their apparently widespread and long standing test of these home pods that are that were in employees' homes and being tested. Like this had to have come up. Uh but you know, so so there's 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 possibly a a process issue there where like either this should either this wasn't found in the test because they didn't do enough testing, or it was found and they decided to ignore it for whatever reason. Uh, which and maybe they had good reasons. Who knows? But either way, like there's probably a process problem there, and then there's definitely a communication problem, both in the fact that we weren't warned ahead of time that it, it's not like a little note in the instruction manual or anything. And honestly, I thought their response to these claims yesterday was was kind of dismissive and almost almost as bad as the you know you're holding it wrong thing. Um, it it was really not I think I think a good moment in Apple PR. Uh, but it, it just seems like you know it's 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 such a dumb little thing. It's this is not a big deal. This is like I said on ATP. It's it's not a big deal. It's not going to like sink the HomePod. It's not going to re- result in like a massive recall. In all likelihood, I mean, you know, Watson announced it tomorrow and prove me wrong, but like, I, I don't think they're going to do anything about it. I think it's, I think it's going to be like a footnote in the support documents, basically says like, hey, if you, you know, don't put this on certain services without some kind of protection, and you know, but but you know, like the the response of, well, you should probably just refinish your table. Right. <laughs> that's that's not a good response, right? And you know, it's <laughs> and, and and it's it's it seems like it's kind of like an unforced error because like. Lots of other products have you know sit on these surfaces without leading marks, and it's not to say that like like I think I, I saw something earlier today that apparently the Sonos One leaves yes. very very faint marks on its four corners, like four little like L shaped corner pads, yeah. and apparently it leaves some mild version of the, of the same thing. So like it's not it's not that the HomePod is the only thing that does this. You know, similar to how like the iPhone Four was not the only fo- the only phone where you hold it a certain way to block the antenna, um, and they spent a lot of that press conference telling you that. Uh, but it, it, it's it is Apple's problem in the sense that you know this is a big story about it. This is something that the HomePod seems to do more than anything else, and I don't think it's reasonable to expect people to know this ahead of time. Yeah, like just just to automatically know. Oh, you shouldn't put things with rubber feet on your oiled wood countertops like to me something with rubber feet seems like it would be totally clean it's right especially inert like it's like it seemed like that would be protecting the the surface from damage you know and And even even though i'm even careful about things like getting my finger grease on something so like when i took the home pod out of the (laughs) box i was careful to only touch it by the sides and like 
you know, like from uh, Shenzhen, China, until it touched my countertop, the bottom had never been touched by human hands. <laughs> you know, and I thought like, well, that's right. clean. You know, it's a clean countertop and the HomePod is certainly clean because I just took it out of the box and never touched it. I, it never would have occurred to me in a million years not to put it on on wood wood kitchen countertops if we had had wood kitchen countertops just wouldn't have even entered my mind as like a hmm maybe i shouldn't put it there you know like things like hey maybe i shouldn't put it you know you know i i would think of things like well maybe i shouldn't put it next to a sink because you know an accidental spill could happen here like i you know We've we I just put it next to where our, our echo was, so but that spot was chosen because, you know, it seemed like a spot that is almost always dry and doesn't have accidental uh, spills. So that occurred to me. The idea that it would leave rings never would have even occurred to me. Yeah, and and it's the kind of thing like obviously like Apple should know, and I'm sure they do know that this category of product. As much as they are trying really hard in the marketing and the PR to make this about audio quality while it's sitting in your living room, the fact is this category of product is very often used in kitchens. And a very common place to put it is on a countertop. And so they should have, and I hope did, test it on every popular countertop material that's available. And they would have found this if they did that because Butcher Block is very, very popular and very yeah. common because it's really nice and pretty inexpensive. To m- and so they should have found this and they didn't and or rather they sh- or they decided to ship it anyway. And so like it's just again, it's like it's this isn't a huge problem. There's already like 10,000 awesome little coasters that people will sell you for $30 <laughs> made out of leather and metal and stuff and, you know, custom engraved artisanally hand-stitched leather coasters for it. And, you know, and maybe Apple will sell their own, you know, this fall for, you know, $100, this little leather circle <laughs> with an Apple logo in the middle of it. But, but you know, the, so it isn't a big problem, uh, but it's just kind of embarrassing. And, and I think it does reveal some potential process flaws in, in how this got out without yes. even a warning. It just seems it's just very surprising to me. Um, <laughs> I think the two most I, I don't know everybody's different. I don't know, but to me, the two most natural places for one of these are a kitchen and a bedroom. Because I don't think it's a great living room product if your living room is your TV room. Like I I use that interchangeably. Right. So I realize that in like a lifestyle magazine, people don't have a TV in their living room because it's meant for hosting parties and everybody you know in the magazines they also have white couches right everybody (laughs) all the chairs face around each other so you can talk to each other and there's no place for a tv well our living room has a tv uh but because it is you know if you have a tv a tv room is not a great place for a home pod unless you really listen to enough music independent of your tv that having a sound system that's completely independent of your home entertainment system makes sense to you it doesn't really make sense to yeah. me that way um kitchen though is perfect because traditionally most people don't have a good sound system in their kitchen and a lot of people spend a lot of time in their kitchens a lot of families you know you know eat their meals in the kitchen um so it's a great place for that and a bedroom would be another place where maybe you don't have a good sound system but that's another place where you might have wood I'm still not sure about the details of what types of wood, what types of treatment. You know, it's like ones that have like a polyurethane coating are safe and ones that are just sort of oiled aren't. But it seems to me like a lot of people might have bedroom furniture 
that exactly is along those lines too. Yeah, it seems like the problem is that the it, is it's it's in surfaces that their main treatment is just oil that is like slightly seeped into the wood right. and that the problem therefore is that when you when you stick the silicone on top of it that the silicone absorbs some of that oil into right. itself right pulling it out of the wood and creating like a basically an unfinished circle in the wood right and that's why it goes away after a few days because the oil has time to like reabsorb into the into that area of the wood yeah um so i had a tweet the other day yesterday actually that went semi-viral for me at least 1322 likes it was an interaction i had it was with a home pod in my office and i here's the I, uh, the entire oh, tweet the quartz thing yeah the entire tweet is just <laughs> is just my the the playback and i believe it's word for word accurate so here's me hey siri oh i shouldn't say that i'm sorry hey you know no if phil schiller said it on your show you can say it on your well, show i'm gonna say hey home pod hey home pod how many quartz are in a gallon and HomePod said, what would you like me to convert one gallon to? And I already <laughs> knew we were off to a rough start. And I said, quartz. Yeah. And there was a little bit of a pause. And HomePod said, quartz is a mineral compound composed of silicon and oxygen atoms in a continuous framework. Blah, 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 blah. blah. More, it was verbatim the first paragraph of Q-U-A-R-T-Z from Wikipedia. And Perfect. I thought it was so funny and it was weird. And I actually know this. I, I, I'm at, I actually, it was a weird conversation with Amy was doing something and, and she said, how many quarts are in a gallon two or, and I was like, no, no four, because, uh, that's the quart and quart is a quarter and it's a quarter gallon. That's how I remember it. Wait, is uh, it really? Yeah. There's four quarts. I never in knew a, that. Yeah. So there's four quarts in a gallon and the way to remember it is that the Q-U-A-R-T is the same whatever root yeah. as quarter. Um, so there you go. You'll never... Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I so learned something I, I actually knew it. I hate the dipshits on Twitter who were like, oh, don't you know that? And it's like, you know what? The, I'm a big fan of Fahrenheit. Everybody knows it. I'm pretty... I'm okay with miles instead of kilometers. Uh, but, you know, like for, for the... Uh, uh, the volume uh, i mean the, the the imperial system is terrible i i mean i you know and oh, it, yeah and it, it even shows like you know that you can buy like a two liter of soda you know like we we do sell products and like the liters is the one thing that sort of seeped into american life so i'm down with that i can't remember for the life of me how many cups are in anything or anything like that but i knew the answer to this but i just thought off the top of my head hey here's a question to ask siri on the home pod uh and the the way that this interaction went bad was so – I swear to God, this is verbatim, word for word, what she said. And then I immediately after this uh, uh, immediately tried it again, and I said the same thing. Hey, HomePod, how many quarts are in a gallon? And uh, it got the right answer. It said there's you know four quarts in a gallon immediately. So like I got it. I had this comical response, immediately asked again, and it gave me the right answer. Um and so a whole bunch of people on Twitter, and I didn't explain it. All I did was post the transcript of my interaction. And a whole bunch of people said, I just tried it. It works for me. Um, but I thought it was kind of enlightening that the, the, the way that this blew up and became a widely retweeted and liked and everything uh, clarified for me some mushy thinking on what's wrong with Siri. And that sort of like, hey, I tried it. It worked for me. And the fact that it worked for me five seconds later, it, it, I get it. I see that all the time. And that, to me, 
is the fundamental problem with Siri today. And it's not how much Siri can do and how many features Siri has. And even though I think that's what too many people are focused on compared to um, the Amazon Alexa on the Echo products and the Google on theirs and how many home smart home stuff they can hook up to and what syntax you have to use, blah, blah, blah. To me, it, it that's way you're already past the fundamental problem, which is that Siri is completely unreliable. Even at the things that Siri can do and maybe even does most of the time correctly. But if you can't count on it, I don't know what percentage of my queries like how many quarts are in a gallon go wrong like this. But whatever that percentage is, and I'm going to guess it's I'm going to say off the top of my head, it's 10 percent, maybe 15 percent. And I could be way wrong either way because I don't keep track of it and human memory is very faulty. But whatever that percentage is, it's way, way, way too high. And it it breeds uh, uh, contempt. It breeds absolute contempt for the feature. And, and the, the, the analogy I would draw is that uh, when I click or tap, you know, on a Mac, I click and on the iOS, I tap a button on the screen. Do I and I know that I've hit the target correctly? That I, my mouse is within the buttons region, or my finger is with you know touches within the buttons tap region. What percentage of the time does that button actually activate when I tap it? It that percentage is very <laughs> very close to a hundred percent, and f- there, it may well be a hundred percent. It may well be that I in a you know the the what five six months I've been using an iPhone ten that I haven't once tapped the screen on a tap target and not had the tap target fire. When I type a key on my keyboard, and this gets to some of the problems with the new MacBook Pro keyboard, when I, t- I when I type a D key, how many times do I get a D on the screen? A hundred percent of the time, not ninety nine percent of the time, not ninety nine point eight percent of the time, a hundred percent of the time, and anything less than that is unacceptable. And I feel like that's that's the problem with Siri. And I get it that Siri's not in the year twenty eighteen. Siri's not going to be at a hundred percent, and it's probably not going to be at ninety nine percent. But it should be in the high nineties, and it's it's nowhere it's nowhere near that. Yeah, Siri has a lot of, I think, pretty big problems and pretty big challenges. Uh, but the reliability is is definitely, I think, one of the biggest uh, because it, you know, when when this was introduced again in 2011, um, you know, that that was a long time ago, and Apple really was indeed way ahead of the competition then. You know, it's, it's kind of like you know when when they introduced the iPhone and Steve uh, said on stage that they were five years ahead of the competition, and that proved to be roughly correct. Right. Um, it really did. With Siri, I think they were, you know, uh, similar, you know, maybe like three to five years ahead of the competition. But it seemed like the competition then, of course, caught up in that time. Like Siri, you know, like many Apple innovations do, Siri kind of set the roadmap of the rest of the industry for them. <laughs> and so they did. Uh, the, the industry followed. Um, but then, it, but it seemed like Siri has not gotten better at anywhere near the rate that everyone else is getting better. It seems like Siri gets better at an absolutely glacial pace compared to developments at at, at uh, Amazon, Google, and even Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, 
it it seems like I, and I don't know what it is. You know, I I don't know what exactly serious challenges are. Whether there's like you know problems with the project or whatever, I have no idea. It doesn't really matter. Right. What matters from the outside is that it it is fundamentally way too unreliable compared to its competitors and also seems to be improving way too slowly and there there's a lot of things the competitors can do that siri still can't do there's a lot of basic things that the competitors do faster and more reliably than siri does um and and there's a lot of things that, that i think the competitors have figured out about how to do how to design the system how, how things should respond how things should be that apple seems to either disagree with or not care about um, like like one of the big things there is like siri is very kind of kind of a smart ass about certain things yeah <laughs> i've mentioned that before you I've... can you can be a smart ass if you're really really good at your job yeah you can occasionally be a smart ass and you know Siri that as a, you know that as a good. smart ass yourself you know that yes uh, right and i know it as somebody who's a, a bit of a smart ass and in my youth was an intolerable smart ass but only yeah. when i knew that i was the smartest person now you're in definitely the not right yeah <laughs> yeah and but like if i was somebody's assistant and i acted the way that i do while I also messed up a third of the things that I was asked to do in comically obtuse ways, right. I would be fired in a day. Right. Like it, it would take less than a day, I'd be fired. Like Siri, I, I think they there's this, you know, there's always been this design of Siri to be like kind of a smartass, and that was kind of cute in 2011. Um, but and, and it would still be kind of okay. I mean, not always. Honestly, I, I think a lot of, it turns off a lot of people, but but it would still be kind of okay if Siri was just awesome. And, and you know, if it did everything, like, awesomely. And, and but, but the reality is, like, you know, no voice assistant is as reliable as our keyboards and our other input devices. Uh, and that, that's kind of a shame, honestly. If you think, you know, your, your earlier thing about, you know, how often does a keyboard fail or does tapping on a screen fail? I'm not sure there's any other area of consumer computing that we tolerate as high of an error rate as we do with, with voice assistants. No, it's nowhere um, close. But, I mean, the right, only other it, thing I could think of is is my Apple TV remote is not as accurate yeah. as my <laughs> as my mouse, at my iMac, my trackpad on my MacBook Pro, or my keyboard, like. Or, or the touchscreen on on my iPhone and iPad. Like, there's definitely a I overshoot things with that remote, or or but it's still way more accurate and efficient. You know, a combination of accuracy, reliability, and efficiency than Siri. Way more. It, it, it's it's yeah. not even close. And I I was puttering around with um, the Fire TV again recently. Just I wanted to see. I want to get to it later, but to talk about the updated YouTube app for Apple TV, and I wanted to see what was going on on the Fire TV with YouTube because there's that whole pissing match between Amazon and Google, uh, where Amazon booted off the official or or youtube yanked the official youtube app or yeah. started blocking it and we could get into that but i uh, their their remote is sort of apple tv like in its minimalism it i don't know if you have one do you have a fire tv product uh i i had i got i bought the first one i have yeah. since sold it but it does it still have the same kind of like black 
almost like triangular profile remote. Yeah, sort of. It's it's got a circular D pad at the top, sort of a lot yeah, like yeah. the old Apple TV remote. It's it's got a circular D pad at the top, a home button, a back button, and a menu button. The menu button is the one that puts it a little bit more in the you know more buttons than Apple has, but it's you know it's roughly Apple TV like in its minimalism. Um, and it, it, it's not, I, I like the Apple TV. I, maybe it's cause I'm used to it. Cause I use Apple TV almost every day. I like the Apple TV. I, there, we, we could do a whole show and we, we, we're, we always, you and I always go along and we could do, do a whole show about the problems with Apple TV's remote. But the basic idea of a touchpad on a remote, I think, is definitely a solid one. I, I it, there's it, there are times when it's so much. It is nice and efficient. It feels like I can go more than one row. Like the D pad on yeah. the the Fire one, it's like one click at a time sucks. And if you press and hold, it goes way too fast. You know. So, <laughs> uh, but even so, I never feel as completely frustrated as I do when a Siri interaction goes wrong. And think about that. Like, I do think that this one that I tweeted, it's really interesting how it went wrong. So the it's four interactions, two from me, two from Siri. And my first one is how many quarts are in a gallon? Which should be, you know, and again, I don't know, you know, to Apple's credit, they at least have the right goal, which is that they want to allow arbitrary syntax like you don't have to say maybe i i would have gotten a better result if i said hey convert one gallon to quartz i don't know if that's better than how many quartz are in a yeah, gallon probably. but apple's stated goal which i think is admirable and which is correct which is that it should just process language the way we do where if i asked you a human thinking you knew the answer, it wouldn't matter to you which way I put it, right? And so I think it's admirable from Apple's perspective that they're approaching it that way. And her response is, what would you like me to convert one gallon to? So she obviously knew I was converting something to gallons, but must have misheard me say quartz, but it's just a weird thing. But then she asks me, what would you like me to convert one gallon to? And all I said was the one word answer quartz. And so she was in the mode where she's listening for me to respond. I didn't have to say, Hey, HomePod quartz. I, I could just, you know, there's certain multi-step things with Siri where she's expecting an answer and you can just say it. So what would you like me to convert one gallon to? I say one word quartz and somehow this gets misconstrued as what is quartz, the mineral. Like, yeah, that's, it's a, there's no excuse for it's that. It's a really strange interaction. It, it It's really bizarre to me that she asked me, what would I like to convert one gallon to? And, and if anything, knowing that I was converting a gallon, you would think, you know, listen for common forms of, uh, you know, volume, measures of volume. You know, whether they... Right, yeah. You didn't say, like, miles right. or airplanes or whatever. It's like it was something that's very that should be a very expected and common response right. to that question. And, and quartz should be on a very short list of things an English speaker might want to convert one gallon <laughs> right. to. It, it's a very bizarre way for that to have gone off the rails. Uh, I, and yeah. again, immediately, like, ten within 10 seconds, like, I took a little bit of time just to jot it down So I because uh, I really suspected I wouldn't be able to reproduce it. So I wanted to, to get it down as best I could. And I even, like, quick looked up the quartz 
QRTZ uh, Wikipedia page to make sure that, and it was word for word. So <laughs> I didn't have to memorize that portion of it. I could just copy and paste it from Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then immediately tried it again and it worked and it, and it did. And it's, but it, to me, that level of unreliability is why people stop using it. And it, and the problem is we're no longer at the point where Siri is, well, it's okay if it sucks because it's just sort of an extra and nobody really depends on it because now with HomePod, they're shipping a product where the primary interface is Siri. And again, even just yeah. leave aside, just leave aside the comparisons to Alexa and Google Assistant. Uh, just judge it on its own merits. Is it good enough? And I really do think the answer is no. It's it's not. It's like having it. It would be like shipping a touchscreen phone before capacitive touchscreens, right? You, it, like back in the when you had a press real hard era. Yeah, exactly. Like this, to, Siri is, is is very frustrating to me because I want so badly to only be in the Apple ecosystem for this stuff. Like I want so badly to not have an Amazon cylinder of commerce and creepiness in my kitchen. Like I I want that to be a HomePod. I want to be all in on Apple stuff because a lot of stuff just works better that way. And I like their privacy and I like their apparent sound quality and niceness of their devices and everything. So like I want so badly for that to be the case, but Siri, I really think is holding them back in, in some pretty big ways. It, it just is not good enough. You know, I think you're right. Like it, it the, the rate of just errors and weirdness and unreliability um, and honestly, fragmentation is another major concern here uh, of like, you know, Siri on different platforms handling different things or not handling different things. Um, that I think that's a pretty big problem. Th- there's lots of problems with Siri, but but it all comes down to the fact that like it is now seven years old and it's still not reliable and 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 not to the sense that it's like 100% reliable because as, as I said earlier, like none of the voice assistants are 100% reliable. But like one one of the most shocking things to me when I first got the Amazon Echo after only having used Siri before that was that the Echo, even though in in some ways it is less advanced, like it's less advanced in things like um, non-English language support um, and things like what order you say certain phrases in with like understanding the syntax. So, it's you know, it, there's areas that like Apple and its fans are always happy to trot out and say, well, Siri is really advanced in these areas. Fine. But the Amazon Echo is 100% reliable for me in what it can do. It almost never misunderstands me. It almost never gives me... I, I think I've heard like their version of like the... Like when Siri says, sorry, I can help you right now, where it's like basically like a server error happened. I've heard that on the Echo, I think twice in two years. And we use it multiple times a day for lots of stuff. So the Echo is clearly way ahead in reliability it's also way ahead in speed like i remember when i first got it just being amazed compared to siri just how quickly and how consistently it responded to things so we have speed consistency and reliability with with the amazon alexa service that we just don't have with siri and i think that it like that shouldn't be the case this is not one of amazon's like core competencies historically this is not the kind of thing that like their products heavily depend on it well now they do but they didn't at the time like apple should be kicking amazon's butt in this area and the fact that they're not i think should be cause for serious concern in the company because this is not just some like 
toy accessory feature that is kind of a fun thing. Like you said, like this is this is becoming a really important feature and in some ways the most important feature of certain products. And it's just it's embarrassing that Apple seems to be unable to compete to that le- to even a, a basic level of reliability and quality compared to what the other players in this same market were able to do in less time. It's inarguable to me that Siri is the primary interface to HomePod. I don't see how else you could, I don't see how you could argue otherwise. Sure. You can control it by airplay and yes, there are hardware volume buttons and you can tap it for play pause, but it's, it's clearly, I mean, it doesn't ship with a remote control. I mean, there's no, there, oh, yeah. You know, the fact that it doesn't ship with a remote control and it, it, it's conceived that the remote control is is your voice. Um, and one could argue that the Siri might even be a, a pretty close second interface for the Apple I, Watch. Exactly. You took the words right out of my mouth. And uh, AirPods. AirPods a little bit less so, yep. you know, but I think if Siri was better on AirPods and faster to respond, I it, it would be primary. Like it's only not primary because yeah. it takes so long and isn't as is, isn't reliable for like, you know, changing what you're listening to or play pause or um you know, changing the volume and stuff like that. You know, it it, and their their future products are going to be i mean what is apple great at they're great at making personal computers smaller and smaller and more personal and more personal and once you get beneath the size of a phone a screen is really not that great as a primary interface i mean that's a big deal that's that's why i wanted to bring up apple watch and siri and you know you saw it coming like it's good for it, it's okay for literally displaying things like taking a glance at your watch to see what that tap was but for responding Siri would be I would be better if Siri were reliable and fast enough yeah and 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 I think we're seeing like this is the direction that some pretty big markets are heading like obviously I, I'm I don't think Siri has a, a ton of I, I don't think it's massively holding back the Mac or the iPad and maybe not the phone, but that, that, that's kind of a maybe. Um, but a lot of these markets where things are getting smaller and, and especially anything wearable, as you said, like you know anything where you have either no screen or a very small screen, that's only going to get more important. Right. And the other voice assistants are not standing still. They are really advancing quickly. Right. And it's in, you know Amazon, I don't think is going to ever have great multi-language support because Amazon, the company, doesn't really have a lot of great support outside of the U.S. for pretty much anything. Um, Google does, and and Google, I think, is doing pretty well in that area so far. Um, Microsoft, probably also with Cortana. I, I, I don't know much about that, but from what I hear, it's it's pretty decent. Um, this is an area where, like, again, like Apple should be leading the way. This is this is user interface, yep. and, and Apple, like in their in their DNA, they've they've and in their history, they have cared so deeply about making really great user interfaces and user experiences and this is one area where when it came out in 2011 it was like well that's it's kind of crappy and 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 kind of unreliable but it's pretty cool let's see where this goes and hopefully apple will will have the best one of these like forever the same way they they usually have the best interface um and that just hasn't happened and it's, it's been quite the opposite where now like Siri seems like Windows by comparison to even the most basic Alexa uh, interactions because the Alexa interactions are just so damn fast and reliable and 
pretty smart, honestly. Like, like when I asked like general knowledge questions or like local questions, um, I, I will often try Siri first if I have my phone with me. And so often it just gives me, you know, bad results or no good results or a web search. And I ask the exact same question and the exact same phrasing to my Amazon Echo and it gives me the answer. Uh. And this doesn't happen every time that way, but it happens a lot that way. And it doesn't usually happen in the other direction. So it, 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 it's concerning to me, like just quite how far behind Siri appears to be and how slowly it seems to ever change. It, it just seems like what I hope is coming is a massive reset or like a big Siri like 2.0. Like I hope there's massive changes underfoot that we just aren't seeing yet because whatever they've been doing to date with Siri – it's just not good enough, and, and it doesn't seem to be getting good enough quickly enough to ever catch up or, or ever even reach a minimum level of good. Hmm. Um, there was a, f- <laughs> there was a funny thing, and it is funny because we were talking about how we don't like it uh, when Siri tries to be funny. But there was a uh, Amy was the one who found it. But um, um. Before the Super Bowl, if you asked the Echo who's going to win the Super Bowl, like Siri has has been ahead. One of the things Siri has been ahead of is Siri's been hooked up to like sports betting lines for a while. Um, So you can ask like who's the favorite in an upcoming major sports event and Siri almost always can tell you exactly what the point spread is or or if it's a different type of sport where it's just odds what the odds are. uh, but when you asked, do you hear about this? When you asked the Alexa before the Super Bowl who was going to win the Super Bowl, <laughs> they programmed her with a total jab at the Patriots. Did you see this? She said, <laughs> no. the team favored to win is the, and <clears throat> <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> it's the Patriots. <clears throat> that was tough to get out. <laughs> but I'm flying with the Eagles on this one because of their relentless defense and the momentum they've been riding off their underdog status. E A G L E S Eagles. That's you know that for whatever reason the Eagles fans their their chant is to just spell out the word Eagles, but they're very into it. And and uh, <laughs> I thought it was amazing that you know, and people are speculating that it, it comes from the fact that the. Uh, uh, Bob Kraft, the uh, uh, owner of the Patriots, is uh, best friends with Trump, uh, you know, and <laughs> and that Bezos, you know, has his issues with Trump, and that par- perhaps that was the reason. But for whatever reason, Echo was totally down with the Eagles in the Super Bowl, which I thought, and I I thought that was actually pretty charming. I thought that was actually a use, you know, one of these assistants trying to be funny, where it, it came off as pretty funny. Meanwhile, I asked Siri the morning of the Super Bowl. <laughs> Who is playing the Super Bowl? And it told me Justin Timberlake. <laughs> well, that's true. That is true. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's like, okay. And if you said who is playing in the Super Bowl, it would tell you the right answer. But if you just said who is playing the Super Bowl, it treated that as a musical venue. Because as everyone knows, the Super Bowl is primarily a musical it's venue. Like, it's like you knew that the Eagles had a backup quarterback in, but you didn't realize they were so desperate that they... <laughs> They were going with Justin Timberlake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it, and it's like it, it's it, again. It's like one of those. It's just a great example of like, okay, I can see why a smartass computer that isn't very advanced gave me that answer because like it interpreted who is playing place name as a musical venue question, yeah. even though the Super Bowl halftime show is a very large event. Sure. 
and it is a musical event. Uh, but if you say who is playing the Super Bowl, that could have multiple meanings. And I think the far more common <laughs> interpretation of that is who is playing the sports game? Because I didn't say who is playing yeah. the Super Bowl halftime show. Like the Super Bowl halftime show is the name of the musical venue. The Super Bowl is a sporting event. <laughs> and so there's like it, it should have gotten that right. And again, it just it, you know, like your court thing. It just it just said something totally to me bonkers, even though it's not quite as bad as yours, because it at least like you can at least see why it got there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like the next level of this needs to be a sort of um, just, you know, I often say this uh, as like a life lesson, like. Honestly, I feel like where I sort of crossed from adolescence into adulthood was when I realized that there's no shame in saying, I don't know when you don't know. And so, you know, it was just yeah. like a breakthrough in my life where I always was so, you know, worried about how smart I was or if I didn't know something that it was shameful, I, you know, I should know the answer to everything. And it's like if you just suddenly relax and realize that if you don't know something, you don't waste people's time to say, you know what, I don't I don't understand either. I don't understand this. Can you stop and explain this to me in a way that I understand? Or if, you know, or if you just somebody asks you a question, and you don't know, just say, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I want Siri to gain i don't know like so if you ask that question and she doesn't know she's pretty sure you're either asking who's playing the halftime show or who's playing the game just ask do you mean the game or the halftime show like like what a human right. being that would have been like yeah uh and you could well a human being would have said the team names that they're playing in the sporting event but, <laughs> but yeah well but <laughs> even if a human was unsure and thought you know like you know it, it, there's a, an uncertainty to these virtual assistants that i will that that you know, like a human should, a, a, a normal human should pick that up. But, you know, I could see how some, uh, an assistant, especially an AI one that isn't a human, could think, well, I don't think Marco is really all that into sports. Uh, so I'm not sure what he's asking about here. And just ask. And you could just say it quickly. Just say, you know, do you mean the game or the halftime show? And you could say the game. <laughs> and then she would tell you who's playing in the game. Like, that would be fine. You would walk away from that interaction without even thinking about that question in the middle if it happened fast enough. It's roughly at the speed that it would happen if it was a human being. And computers are so much faster than human beings that it, there's no reason it shouldn't, even if it has to round trip to the cloud briefly, right? It, it could still happen at roughly the same speed as human interaction. You know, just think about yeah. the little questions you get asked. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and it's like, uh, I, I was at, we have a little, uh, great little grocery store here in Center City, Philadelphia. Uh, it's called the Bruno Brothers, and they, you know, it's uh, all sorts of great, uh, like Italian lunch meats and stuff, and fresh break bread and stuff. I, I stopped in, and all I did is just get a, a big long loaf of Italian bread, uh, and it comes in its own little paper sleeve. And um, I rang out. That's all I needed. And I rang out and the guy was going to, you know, he was like, do you want a, do you want a bag? And I was like, nah, because it's in a bag. But like him asking me, do I want a bag for my bread that's already in a bag? And that's all I've got to carry. Like, I didn't feel interrupted by that. You know, it because it, it happened at a speed and a pace. And, and there's no reason that our virtual assistants shouldn't be able to interact with us like that. Like, I don't expect it all to come out in one fluent query from a human that gives the answer, you know, but just have some back and forth. I love like if you were Siri, you would have asked a bag for what? <laughs> 
And he would have said, you're bread. And you would have been like, bread is a baked food product made <laughs> <Right>. from wheat. <laughs> right. Like the fact that the fact that she forgot we were talking about units of measure, it almost is like she's, you know, got like a head injury. And, you know, right, yeah. you know what I mean? Like you have this, like you've hired an assistant, like a human and it, you know, and it's great. And then, oh my God, the t- terrible news, you know, uh, she's in a car accident and she's injured her head and then she comes back and it's like you would, and, and you're, you know, you ask a question like that. And all of a sudden she starts telling you about quartz, the mineral, it, even though two seconds ago, she just asked you a question about what do you want to convert gallons to? You would feel terrible, but you would think like, well, I've, I've got to fire her. Right, yeah. It's like, the, you know, there's clearly this person, Isn't, like, this is a tragedy, but this also means this person probably can't right. do his job, you know? And, and it's like, here. yeah, here you don't have the human connection. It's just this person can't, or this, this right. AI really is not very good right. at this job. All right. Let me take a break here and thank our next sponsor. Uh, it's our good friends at Eero, E-E-R-O. Um, Eero makes Wi-Fi um, systems for your house, and they use what's called a mesh network where you just plug a bunch of them in, and you don't have to. There's no special magic one that's the base system. You just plug uh, the same little uh, puck size thing, which is very nicely designed. You plug them in all around your house, depending on how big your house is or what their shape is. And there's all sorts of information at the website that can help you choose how many of them to buy. Well, they've got their, their second generation product is out. Um, and the second generation product is better. It has more speed, more range, and in same high quality, elegant design as the original. Um, and they've got uh, these new ones that are like a little, they call them a beacon. And the beacon, you just plug in like a nightlight, goes right in the socket. There's no cable or anything. You just plug it in a socket somewhere, like maybe at the top of some steps, stairway or something like that. Um, And it even has a light (laughs) because it could be a nightlight. So it has a nightlight. But if you don't want the nightlight, they're wonderful, excellent Eero app that you install on your phone, which is where you control the whole system from. Um, you could just turn off the light or turn it on or, or put it on a schedule or whatever. Um, but anyway, the whole second generation system from Eero, uh, adds a third five gigahertz radio and that makes it, that's now tri-band and it's now twice as fast as its predecessor. And the first generation Eero is the fastest Wi-Fi system I ever had in my house, in my life. And it was great. Still great. And you can just, uh, if you already have first generation, you can add second generation hardware and it all just works together. And the app is great. And the app lets you do all sorts of terrific things like do speed tests to make sure, see what kind of up down, upstream, downstream connection you're getting. Um, it's really, it's just a great product. Um, the beacon is half the size of the little of the normal stations that they have. And it really is. It's very discreet. It is the sort of thing that doesn't junk up your house or anything like that. No one will even notice that you've got it. But what you wind up with is, is a solid Wi-Fi network, a single network meshed together with these multiple hardware units. So it's not like when you're moving from one area to another, your, your devices are going from one network to another. They just see one network and it really can thoroughly, uh, cover a, a large house or a difficult house with with walls or something like that. It's really great. Um, I, I use it here. You're hearing me right now speak to you over a Nero network. Um, I really do like this product. And and to me, the thing that I like is that it's just it it, it could not have been easier to set up. You, I just plugged them in and told the Eero app what room each one was in, and 
that was it. I've never done any more work than that to configure it. Um, <laughs> for someone as lazy as me that, who just wants good Wi-Fi throughout the house, that's uh, really pretty great. Um, what more am I supposed to tell you? I think I'm supposed to give you a URL, uh, and that's uh, eero.com. But what you got to remember, you got to remember is um, the the code. And it's a code that will get you free overnight shipping to the U.S. and Canada. And that code is the talk show, T-H-E-T-A-L-K-S-H-O-W. Uh, so use that code, the talk show, talk show with the the, which I, I always pleases me a little bit. Um, and you get free overnight shipping in the U.S. or Canada. It's a great product. Um, and a good deal. You get free overnight shipping. You're listening to me right now. You can have this thing in your house by tomorrow. So there you go. My thanks to Eero.com for uh, sponsoring the show. What do you do on the underscore show? Do you do the ads? Do you do the sponsors? Or, or does underscore do them? I do them. It's basically like a smaller version of ATP yeah. in that way. So do you, do you like, is it relaxing to not have to do the sponsors? Oh, it's is glorious. It? Like what I love about doing this show is I can just walk over to my desk five seconds before we were going to record and just sit down and just start. And I don't have to have any windows open. I don't have to be like watching like the script or the program or, you know, having the list of sponsors out. Like, cause with ATP, like at first I started, do, I, I, for years I would do the ads live as we recorded. And that was terrible hmm. because not only would I screw them up a lot and require lots of editing, um, but the whole show, I was like, I, like my, I was always like a little bit distracted that oh, I have this ad, I have to fit in sometime. Like I, I have to like wait for a time and then jump on it and, and you know just start doing it. And and it was always distracting me from listening to the conversation or or really you know being more in depth about you know about my own conversations. And so I started about I don't know six months ago or a year ago. I started basically pre pre recording them, but I wanted to sound like I'm doing them live. So I record them like a half hour before I record the show. So it's like my same mm. setup. My like it's the same night I'm recording. My voice sounds the same. The room is the same. Um, so it's still like kind of like a mad rush to get everything done before each show. But now I at least like during the show I don't have to worry about it so much. Um, so during the show, like I'm I can be more present in the conversation and not be constantly looking at the sponsor list and trying to figure out like when I can do each one. Um, the downside is that it allows me to be a little bit more of a perfectionist. So a lot of times I have to, I have to do an ad read like five times before I actually get <laughs> That's it. That's right. the same with me. 90% of the ad reads I do on the talk show, I just do live during recording. Like I did right there with Eero, uh, probably even more than 90%. But then every once in a while something happens, either I botch it or, or something happens in between recording and and doing the show or I, I go to record and there's a sponsor who's set to go, but they still haven't given us the thing and I have to do that the next day. Uh, and when I do that, I almost never ever redo a read when I do it live during the recording like this. And every single time I do it independently by myself, I botch it. <laughs> I can't, there is something yeah. I I've developed some kind of, uh, of mental muscle where I no longer feel weird or awkward talking to somebody like you doing the show. 
Like I, I'm very comfortable right now having this conversation with you, even knowing that we're recording it and tens of thousands of people will soon be listening to it. I, which originally I always felt very self-conscious about, but I've, I've developed a comfort, but when I'm here just talking into the microphone and nobody's listening <laughs> to me, I feel incredibly awkward. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you took notice that one of the, one of the reads last week I had to redo, uh, Paul Cafasis was, was the guest and I had to, I had to do one of the reads the, uh, the next day. I don't know if you noticed. I forget. Honestly, I, I usually skip ads. So <laughs> I, I don't really notice that much. I thought it was a good one. Uh, what was it? It was the it was the uh, Casper one because Casper had, you know this too, because I think they were on ATP. Yeah, the uh, President's, President's Day, Day sale. sale. And it was sort of like... Uh, they they were like if your show airs on these dates in February, we want you to do the President's Day sale, and the show was going to come out the day before, but at night, and so <laughs> we had the same right. issue. And, <laughs> and we we actually went. I had Jesse like go check with right. them. <laughs> like, can we do it? Like, what should we do the day before this? Day? It was going to come out at like like ten thirty at night the the day, the day before. Uh, and they were like, well, we'd rather have the President's Day sale. So I was like, I can do that. I can do it the next day. But I also had, I don't know if it sounded weird to people. If any, you know, backstory, if you thought that the Casper's President's Day sale sounded weird last week, it was because when I recorded with Paul, my voice was still really hoarse from having been out in Las Vegas for the Super Bowl. And I always come back from Vegas with a hoarse voice because it's dry and people smoke cigarettes and I'm not used to either. I'm not used to desert air and I'm not used to breathing cigarette smoke combined with the fact that in while watching the Super Bowl, it's a really noisy, big cavernous room. And to say anything, you have to yell. Um, so when I recorded, I think on Wednesday with Paul, my voice was still a mess. And by Thursday, it was already sounding better. But I was, as I'm recording the ad, I'm like, I should, I should like scream a little or something to hoarsen up my voice to get it back to where it was. Anyway. Yeah, this is why, like, when I pre-record, I, I do it the same night, like, just right. right before the show. Because otherwise, it, it sounds different. Right. And I, like, I think most people really don't care. But I care like like when I'm doing it, like I care that like I want this to sound totally seamless. Uh, speaking of ad skipping, one of the recent things that have come out in the world of podcasting is Apple's uh, long awaited analytics have come out. Um, and so if you have a uh, podcast in the iTunes store and you've signed up for their. I guess I don't think you can get listed if you're not in Podcast Connect, right? Like they don't just list podcasts. Or, yeah, you have to sign right. up. I think the only question is like, you know, if you signed up a while ago and you forgot what email yeah. you use, like you might have to like basically like claim it from right. them or register in a certain right. way with them. I forget how I, I did it a while ago, so I forgot uh, how I did it. I, but like I was already I registered a, in some I, way. Uh, well, I have a cheat move because I know <laughs> I know some people on the podcast team there. Yeah, that's that's totally BS. But I <laughs> yeah. do think though that um, uh. Everybody, I think that's why they have the one special iTunes tag for the RSS feed with an email address. That if you can email from the address yep. that's in your RSS feed, they trust it. And that makes a, a certain amount of sense that, you know, if somebody has, <laughs> if somebody has right access to your RSS feed for your podcast, you're, you're screwed already, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The game's right. over at that point. <laughs> um, but anyway, they came out with these analytics and it's, you know, what, what the, 
the advertising industry wants is, of course, uh, JavaScript to be running, their JavaScript to be running all the time, you know, uh, turning on your camera to look at you while you listen to podcasts. Any, any, the most intrusive thing you can possibly imagine, like all of standard web advertising technology has fallen into where your fucking battery goes dead because of ads on web pages now. Um, Oh, of so course, bad. that's what they want. And of course, Apple wasn't willing to give them anything close to that. But they do have some basic listening stats. And I was super happy, but totally not surprised that the graph uh, of every episode of my show looks pretty much the same, which is that, um, you know, most people listen to the end. There's some drop off, but that, you know, and I think some of that could correspond to people who started listening to it and then listen somewhere else and it's not connected there. Um, and you can see in each episode three dips where the sponsor reads go. And those dips are surprisingly shallow. So, yes, there are people who skip ads, uh, but it is a, a definite minority of listeners. And I, you know, I've said before, I often say it when you're on because I get into shop talk about running a podcast, but it's just, I just see my job doing these ads as trying to make them as interesting as possible, both for, for everybody's benefit, for the sponsor's benefit. Um, uh, you know, even if you've heard me talk about Eero before or Squarespace, what can I say that maybe would throw a monkey wrench in there and, and, you know, make you want to listen for another minute? Uh, you know, and if you want to skip, skip, I can't, you know, I'm not going to try to fight you. You know, it's my job to make it interesting. Yeah, I mean, like we found, yeah, like we found pretty similar um, patterns when we when I looked at ATP stats in, in the same thing. Which probably makes sense. We probably have a lot of the same audience. Um, where, like, you know, turns out most people listen to most shows all the way through, and there's a small dip at, at, at the ad breaks that you can see, but it's not. It's you know on the order of like maybe fifteen percent. Yeah. Uh, fewer people listen to the ad breaks. Like it's not a huge. And jump you down. can also see where they're using like a thirty-second skip. It comes. It starts to come back in the second half of the ad read. <laughs> it does. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I I appreciate that. I'm I, I'm you know I've always wanted to know, but I'm not surprised. Um, I often get emails from people when I mention it, and and people are so nice, and I think it's because they realize that me and you know. Uh, I'm sure it's true for you guys too. I'm sure it's true for everybody at like Relay, uh, uh, you know, all the all the people who have shows there. But people realize that that we're all very low to the ground here. You know, there's no employees at Daring Fireball. There's no you know Six Colors doesn't have like a sales department. You know, it, it's you know there's not much. There's really nothing between us and our readers and listeners. Um, and I often get email that it, it sort of takes that into a consideration and they're, you know, they want us to succeed. And, and the gist of these emails often are, Hey, I'm a longtime listener of your show. I love it. I love every episode that comes out. Um, I feel guilty though. Cause I, here's my personal, and it's so funny how many people repeat the same thing. They're like, I will listen to every sponsor for the first time and sometimes the second time. But then after that I'll skip. And I'm like, that's great. That's f-. And they're like, you know, I'm like, I write back. I'm like, you don't need to apologize. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's I'm I'm happy right. with that. I mean, like, like I started I started when I when I started doing chapters in ATP. Um, you know, the question obviously becomes like, you know, how do you chapter ads? Like, you know, some people don't put chapters in the ads, so you so it's, it's harder to skip them if you want to. Um, I decided I, I basically worked through a bunch of things and, and decided 
what I do is I put a chapter at the start of the ad. When the ad is playing, it, it shows it says sponsor colon name of sponsor and it links to the sponsor URL. So it's actually kind of better if we're you know if you're interested in the product, you get a link right, right there in the chapter title. So like it's it's showing right on screen. You don't have to like go over to the show notes, scroll down to the bottom and find it. Like it's right there. So it's super easy. If you want to look at the sponsor, the link is right there. So I think sponsors are getting some additional value there. And then you can skip that chapter. But the, but where that chapter ends is not at the end of the sponsor read, but like 10 seconds before the end of the sponsor read. And so if you skip the, the sponsor read, what you hear is the very end summary where it says, you know, for a great mattress, go to this URL and use this promo code. Like that, that that's what you hear. Yeah. And so you, you're basically hearing a 10-second version of the ad or so. And that is what I found to be a very good compromise where, like, if you've heard the ad a million times, you already know what this company does. You hit skip, you hear, you get reminded of the URL and the promo code, and you move on, right? And and that, I think, it, like, I've heard from both uh, listeners and from advertisers that that seems to be a very good yeah. balance. Um. I wrote to Caleb Sexton, who, uh, after you, you posted that you did that, and then he's, he edits this show, and I said, hey, that's pretty clever. Maybe we could do that. And he was like, I've been trying to do that all along. And I was like, oh, I'll try to do a better job of doing a good summary at the end of the spots. Thanks. <laughs> or or yeah, where well, by and, all along and, he it, means it, ever, it since, ever since he's been using Forecast or whatever the – yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, Forecast, forecast yeah. Yeah, because it, it – and you do have to, like, kind of, you know, structure your reads. Like, to, what I basically say is, like – we're brought to you this week by so-and-so. Here's the URL and the promo code. And then big, long explanation for two minutes. And then here's, once again, go to this URL, promo code. Thanks again. Thanks to sponsor. You know, like, so you have to structure it in a way where if you cut out the whole middle of it, it still makes some sense. So when you, you know? guys record ATP, you guys, you sit there and you've got a soundboard thing. And so when, uh, like when Syracuse mentioned file systems and you play the ding, that's live when you're recording. Like you don't do that in post. No, it's... It's a bell. I got. It's an actual bell. So it's not even a soundboard app. You I have, actually. I have a bell on my desk. Keep a bell and, and yeah, and you do that. Um, what about? Yeah, I, the only time I ever used a soundboard app is when we did our live show last year. I had a soundboard app running so I could play like our our uh, ad transition mm-hmm. music and the outro music and the theme yeah. song. That's that's the only reason I I've ever used what about, one. But when we record live, I have a bell on my desk and I I bring it out and the first time he mentions file systems, I hit that bell and I put it I put What about the away. car door for car talk? <laughs> I put that in during ah, editing. So that is in post. I thought that might have been live. I wasn't sure. Although I actually rec- that is actually my car door from the BMW I had like five years ago. I actually I went out one night and recorded those sounds. So it's actually that was actually my car. Uh, speaking of cars, I want to say while we're and while we're talking about ATP before we get back to the Mac stuff, I want to thank you guys uh, for turning me on to the Grand Tour. I never watched Top Gear, and I'm not really a car person, but I've heard what. Did we turn you on? I think we've hated. The I Grand know, Tour. but I did know. We, did we actually? Turn well, you on in a way, but, but you guys it seemed to like Top Gear enough, and this Grand Tour thing was intriguing to me enough. Uh, and Jonas and I started watching it together, and we both love it. I absolutely. We watched season two first, and just tore through it, and we don't have Jonas and I don't have a lot of shows that we both like. Uh, 
and 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 a lot of the ones we do are ones like Saturday Night Live that we watch with Amy too. And I mean, it's not like I'm looking for shows that only Jonas and I watch, but it's you know it's like a nice thing. And like when he was growing up, we loved the Star Wars, the Clone Wars animated series, and and the Rebels thing. Um, but he's not into sports at all. And a lot of what I watch during the day or, or like when he's still awake is sports. Um, and we both love the grand tour. And, and the thing I don't get though, is you guys all seem to like, when you watch it, you like skip around, like what, what are the parts that you skip past? You just watch the parts when they're like actually reviewing cars. Usually I will skip past any parts that have them in the studio. I love, I love the parts uh, so in the like, studio. Uh, a lot of them are a lot of them get pretty cringeworthy like not all of them but yeah a lot it of is it, like like I, I and like back when it was top gear i used to skip through a lot of that stuff because or i, I would skip through the the celebrity part because they would bring on usually like a british celebrity who mm-hmm. i didn't know and so i would skip because like well i don't even know this person i, I have no interest in this and i skip that section and just you know jump in to whatever they did next the problem with with the top with um, the grand tour of the u.s the new u.s show is that they just, I think, need a lot more editing than what they are getting. I, see, I, <laughs> and a lot of the jokes and stuff that they do in, in the indoor segments, I think, are, are pretty crazy. I really disagree. And Jonas likes it, too. We watch the whole thing straight through. And it's I'm not going to say every bit works, but I think that they actually do a pretty good job of not letting any segment run too long. And like when they do the thing that's most like a podcast, the conversation street, they it's always too short. It's like I would listen to those guys talk about cars for three times as long uh, per episode. So I feel like they do a really good job of sort of leaving you wanting more. I, I, I we love the show. We really do. And we're now we're like halfway through season one. I, I and I. I give well, credit to you. Guys. I'm glad you. I'm glad you enjoy it. Somebody. I think has you to. should. I think you should give it another shot when when new episodes come out. I think you should just try just, you know, crack open an IPA or something just to take the edge off and then just just watch the whole show straight through. I, I'm telling you, it there's there there's something going on. I I don't know. I, I'm I, I really can't believe I never watched these guys before. I really like it, and I'm not even all that into cars. Well, I'm glad you enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> all right there was a thing last week and actually the original scoop it wasn't german it was actually um uh ina freed at axios actually had the first story um i'm really digging axios by the way i don't know if you read news on axios but axios is is this newish site that launched like last year um and they just like the whole style of Axios, whether it's tech or politics or anything else they cover, is sort of breaking everything down into just like bullet points, um, which isn't how I'd want to read everything, but it's really kind of efficient. And you know, it's like I'd either I either want to read something that's truly a well written article by a good writer, and and you could really dig into it, you know, like a piece of steak, or I just want like the snack size tidbits. And I feel like so much of the news industry has sort of grown up around this idea that, you know, if you've got three sentences to say, you've still got to dress it up in 750 words of history and whatever, just to make it article length. Um, But anyway, Ina had this story uh, first before German, that there was some kind of meeting uh, Craig Federighi held to give a revised plan to employees uh, and and 
mentioned some features that were originally going to be set for iOS this year that got that are being pushed a year back, including a refresh of the home screen and the uh, CarPlay interface um, and some other things. But that there are new features, but that they're somehow prior, you know, doing something to focus on quality and performance a little bit more than before and giving certain projects more time to go. And then German, I think, had the story the same did later in the same day. And I don't know if it was pressured because uh, Ina had it first or if it was going to run anyway. But his story took more of an angle uh, indicating that this is sort of a radical departure and that people in, you know, who heard it were surprised by this, that this is a big change. Uh, and I, I, uh, my take on it is that it's not a big change. It's like a course correction. And then there was a good thread on Twitter by Steven Sanofsky, who was, you know, used to head up the Windows division at Apple or Microsoft, not Apple, who sort of was making the same case that this sort of three-way, three-headed thing of schedule, quality, and new features is always, you know, a balancing act. I'm curious what you what you think about this. It's hard for me to really have a, a, a reasonable or useful opinion on like the internal, um, you know, mechanics of how big companies balance the stuff because I've never worked in a big company. So I really am not familiar with, you know, that kind of thing at all. All I can do is comment on what I see from the outside and, and what I experience with the products and, and, you know, and like any way that I develop my stuff or that I prioritize quality and time and everything else is not at all the same way that a company like Apple would do pretty much anything. Um, so what I can see is I, I think it's clear that in recent years, Apple has struggled with quality and they have been seemingly torn between a lot of competing desires of, you know, moving fast versus getting good quality stuff out there versus bug fixes versus expansion. Um, it, and it, these aren't easy problems to solve. And, and they've been doing overall a pretty decent job of, of most of it. Um, like it's it, The reason we're able to complain about minor problems here and there is because almost everything is great. And, and almost everything is, has been working well for, for a long time. And, and so, you know, the, the small stuff sticks out more. Um, all I can see is that platforms and products that I like a lot, that I depend on a lot, or, or that I feel like need attention, oftentimes don't get the attention. It seems like Apple has always been pretty bad at multitasking. And, and this isn't a Tim thing. This goes back to the Steve era, too. Like Apple has been pretty bad at really well maintaining multiple platforms and, and many products. They they do seem to have like tunnel vision at times where like certain things will get the focus and everything else gets neglected pretty badly uh, for a, for a while and then eventually like it'll come around and the things that got neglected for a while will get like a big burst of investment and then nothing for a few years or, or more and 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 again they had this problem under Steve and it almost um, seems like so that's this, happening this again with thing. the iPad where last year iPad you know for years people have been clamoring well look this thing is supposed to be a laptop replacement and it still has all the same multitasking features of a phone you know yeah. how how come i have a 13 inch screen on my ipad pro why can't i put two apps up side by side etc and they finally addressed it but now it seems like according to these rumors that that 
big new, you know, major features like that for iPad are punted for next year again already. Yeah. And, and it's hard to draw comparisons for like the way things used to be. Like, you know, people always say, well, you know, when the iPhone came out, like then, uh, whatever version of Mac OS was that year, I forget, like it was delayed and they famously said like they, it took them, you know, it took them too much, too much effort on the iOS. Anyway, it's, it's really not that useful to make comparisons to, to how it was back then because, Apple today is just vastly bigger and and the competitive landscape is vastly different like it's such a different beast and such a different problem today uh, that it, it, you can't just apply like you know blanket wisdom or examples from the past but it does seem like they still don't multitask very well like if they're all their growth and all the new product lines they've launched and everything they still have that fundamental problem and I don't know, you know, some some like analysts like to talk about the uh, corporate structure of Apple being like you know functional rather than divisional or something like that. That's it, right? Yeah, uh, whatever that is. Like, and and I don't know. Maybe this, maybe that's holding them back in this area. I don't know. But what, whatever the cause, and whatever possible solutions exist, the, the the problem to me is the same problem they've had for a very long time, which is they just don't multitask very well. But today they have more platforms and products than ever that they're trying to maintain and so that so even if you know, like you know back you know 10 years ago maybe they could only really maintain like one or two things well now maybe they can maintain 10 things but they have 12 you know like it's it's something like that like even if they've gotten better at it they're still not able to do it well enough at the scale they are at today and so you have things like, you know, things being neglected for a long time. You have like, I think one of the biggest, uh, you know, for a while you were right, for, for a while the iPad was one of these things where like, it just seemed like iPad, uh, the, the iPad OS was getting very little attention for Apple for years. Um, fortunately, that, that seems to have turned around. Um, today, I would say one of the big dangers of that is the Mac. Uh, and I, I don't think I'm going to get a lot of argument about that. Like the Mac has had... Uh, not seemingly a ton of software uh, investment in recent years, and it's really starting to have some pretty big problems. Uh, but and again, like I say, this on a Mac, like it's working. <laughs> so like it's it, everything's relative, I guess. But uh, you know, there are it seems like almost every week there's some kind of embarrassing quality or security flaw in Mac OS, uh, and and so like obviously this is not getting the the type of attention it deserves or the, or the, the the time for bug fixing or quality assurance that it needs. Um, so I think this is a problem that Apple can fix. Like they have a massive amount of resources at their disposal. I, I think, you know, it's, you can't just throw money at something and make it go away. It isn't that easy, but it's also really hard to argue that Apple can't do something because they don't have enough of something. That is really a tough yeah. argument because like, if they have all the resources in the world if they for example if they like can't hire enough engineers well fix that problem like find ways to hire more engineers like more engineers exist they work at lots of other places why not apple and so like maybe there's changes to policies or cultures or you know geographies that they need to make i don't know i don't know what the problem is but these are problems with, that are within their control to solve. Um, and, and so that ultimately what we need is a company that is able to maintain the many products and platforms and services that, they're, that they keep launching, <laughs> that they keep expanding into. Like, 
it, it, it to me it's it's not good if they like just keep launching new platforms and new services and stuff and then just leave them to die while they work on the next big thing like that's not long term going to be healthy yeah i you know it, 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 it's a hard argument to it, it's inherently mushy you know to say that it comes down to three things schedule features quality you know you it, that's arbitrary to say those are the three things it, but it's not a bad way to break it up you know it's like the old analogy that you can have uh what good soon or cheap pick two and you know the real thing is you can pick one you know that they're all at odds with each other um but i do think that they've gone off the rails in recent years a little bit and again it's a course correction more than turning a you know apple especially the iphone you know it's just this massive massive ship analogy wise just you know the the biggest cruise ship you could imagine and it's not like they need to turn this thing 90 degrees and go in a totally different direction and break all of this massive momentum they have they need like a minor course correction in my opinion but in the long term just just a handful of years if you're off by just a few degrees you can wind up you know hundreds of miles away from where you should be you know it's important to make course corrections because even a minor course correction over time can get you way off track and i feel like where apple has gone wrong in recent years is new emphasizing new features over over improving existing features it is is the single biggest thing. And I think that's true across all their platforms. And I really, I just think that there's like the Mac to me is the one that means the most to me personally. It's the one I love the most. If I could only use one Apple platform, I I would swear to God, I would give up my iPhone before I gave up using a Mac. That's how much uh, me too. I, I wouldn't even hesitate. It, if I had gun to my head, I wouldn't even really be a tough decision. And I might bitch about it every day for the rest of my life as I use a Google pixel, uh, but I, it, it's just too important to my work, and I'd, you know, if anything, maybe having a phone I like less would be better, you know, for my attention or something like that. Yeah, that actually might be a benefit. Um, <laughs> and I worry the most about the Mac because I see weird things happening with the Mac that, to me, are worrisome. Because to me, as somebody who, who to me, gets the Mac. And what makes the Mac the Mac in a way that I, I even as a writer, have trouble expressing sometimes because it's, it's like trying to explain why I love my wife. You know, it's like I, I can give you reasons, but there's also something ineffable about it that I can't explain. And I see weird things happen on the Mac that to me are like, uh, this is weird. And I'll just give you one minor example. It's like I forget, like two or three years ago when they added tab documents to to Coco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I get it. I use tabs in Safari. I do I use tabs in terminal too. Um and then they added it to like NS document and like any NS document based app could have tabs and it was all just so it, it Weird, because it wasn't designed, the system, the UI wasn't designed from the get-go to have tab windows. And browsers kind of pulled it off because browsers have always sort of been their weird little world within a world where you can run apps within a browser, you know. And terminal is terminal, and terminal is not really a normal app. But then to do it document-wide, and it it's like, well, what keyboard shortcut are you going to use? Because all these other apps that have tabs have command T for making a new tab, but all NS document 
apps have used Command T since like 1988 with Next Step for opening the font panel. And I thought, well, there's a lot of things that they're going to, I can't wait to see how they clarify all these things. And they, <laughs> they didn't really do any of that. They right. just didn't. <laughs> and, <Yep. laughs> and, and to me, I know there's people who love spaces, but I, I really cannot get into spaces. And to me, it's just confusing. And I often feel like, where the hell am I? And I, I get the idea of having multiple doc, you know, multiple desktops that you can go between and maybe divide your work up between them. I get the idea, but to me, the fact that, the system wasn't designed originally with spaces in mind. And to me, they never really, they never really clarified it and unified it into a whole. And there's just a whole bunch of little things like that. So uh, to me, wanting Apple to add new features to Mac OS is uh, the wrong way to look at it. I almost feel like, I feel like the desktop, the idea of desktop computing in a window, you know, mouse pointer and a windowing system and the Mac style of having the menu bar at the top, they've got that down. That doesn't really need to be rethought. It's This is, is what it is, and it'll have the future that it has, and it's good for what it's good at and better than anything else for what it's better at. Um, I feel just make those features work better. I feel like adding, you know, here's a thing that's all new, it just messes it up. Yeah, and to me, like, I... I I disagree somewhat with with the concept that I know this is not what you just said, but a lot of people think of this in a similar way, where they where people think like desktop OSs are kind of just a solved problem that they're just done, and there's really nowhere to go with them. And I fundamentally disagree with that. Like, there's so much improvement that Mac OS could have, and there's lots of different areas. You know, just a, a, as a quick example, like app installation, hmm. like the whole thing with like well, you download a DMG and then you you know open up this virtual disk image yeah. and you <laughs> drag this like that's crazy and incredibly confusing to anybody and and that's you know no wonder that's that's a problem also like the fact that apps can just write all over the system with temp files and other garbage that goes all over like library and everything like that's kind of weird and that when you delete an app all of its crap isn't deleted like there's a lot of things that we learn from iOS that I think would be nice to be brought to the Mac in for for things like you know the ease of software installation and deleting things and everything. The Mac App Store kind of went halfway with that, but it has been done so poorly and so half-assedly for for its entire lifetime that it really doesn't do a great service to these concepts at all, um, and and might even be doing more harm than good to some of these concepts and and to the advancement of the platform. Um, but so. To me, like there's there's a lot of ways that the Mac can move forward and needs to move forward. Um, you know, from simple things like features, like for instance, um, I still very firmly believe that we need cellular Macs. We need cellular Mac laptops, and the system has the concept of distri- of distinguishing a network connection request between cellular. Between like it should run over cellular and this shouldn't run over cellular. It's been there since iOS got it like three, four years ago at least. Um, so like there is a framework there for apps to to like control their data usage. There's also third party apps like Trip Mode that allow you, allow, allow the user to control this. So like the software support is either there or easy to add. So they need to add cellular well, Macs. I don't know why they still don't that, have them. The PC industry's had them for 10 years. That's, like, that, that's the yeah. sort of problem that I always look to Apple to solve, right? It is a problem that if you have a cellular Mac, you wouldn't want it to have, you wouldn't want it to behave the same way it would when it's on unfettered Wi-Fi. Um, and I can vouch for this having been on uh, like a 
cruise ship where you pay for the Wi-Fi by like in like very expensive yeah. one gigabyte doses, where I quickly learned that even with trying my best to um, the last time I did this, I I I knew that Jason Snell had recommended an app, and it ends up it was the the trip mode but i didn't have it yet so even just getting it was hard because it was on this terrible cruise ship wi-fi um, <laughs> but literally just opening my mac and like having a safari that didn't have any tabs open in the background and don't open mail and it's like it didn't matter what i did I, i'd mow through a gigabyte in like 10 minutes and it'd be like what the hell just happened i don't even understand what the hell just happened there i'd look to apple to solve that like and i hate to say it to the trip mode uh people but what I would look for Apple to do if they came out with cellular Max is coincide with an OS feature that puts, you know, that that puts trip mode out of business by making explicit, just giving you explicit control over what can do what over cellular and treating it very differently. It's totally a solvable yeah. problem. Just like we have right? on iOS. Like it, like iOS solved this problem years ago with with settings. Well, iOS easy. solves it in a different way, though, where iOS has a very different concept of what an app can do in the background, meaning it's not the front most has input focus. Like the Mac would have to solve it in oh, a sure. different way, but it's totally solvable. It's oh, well, but but iOS has a settings right. panel called Cellular, right. and you right. can go in there and you can see how much data each app is using, and you can turn them off. And you can you can say, well, this app right. is okay over Wi-Fi, but don't well, use cellular. Well, I would data imagine this app. Like, that this is a in my problem. mind, and it could be wrong. It's you know you always have to try it and see if it's good. But my mind, if they came out with cellular Max, my mind in my mind it would be something more active, interactive, where like you turn on cellular, and as soon as an app tries to hit the network the first time, you'd get some kind of alert like, hey, you know, Tweetbot is trying to use you know the internet over cellular do you want to allow this only when you know and have like an option where it's only allowed to do it when it's front most i don't know that's interesting yeah almost almost like like little snitch like telling you like hey this app is yeah trying to do yeah this. exactly little it? snitch is actually what i have in mind where where you know it you know some, yeah. some kind of thing like that and then once i say for the first time oh yeah tweetbot i always have that running but yeah you know what that would be actually be fine on cellular if it only could use the internet while it's the front most application that's fine uh you know, yeah. and and mail, and just say, hey, when you're on cellular, do you want to turn off everything except just downloading the text of mails? You don't want to, you know. And iOS is very smart about this, where you know it won't download images in email and stuff like that. I, I, it's totally solvable. Uh, what do you call it? The Microsoft. Yeah. You guys and talked about an ATP. Microsoft has cellular uh, Surface laptops, and they're. Oh yeah, there's been cellular PC laptops literally for over a decade. Like this is not a, a rare thing. I'm, not, I'm like I'm not asking for something that we don't know whether it's possible or not. No, we know it's possible. The rest of the industry does it. People buy it and it's fine. Um, so yeah, and I, I, what worries me ultimately with the Mac is like it's hard to see a lot of those big features like that getting done and or getting done well. Because what seems to be Mac involved or Mac investment uh, in recent years is a lot of stuff just never comes to the Mac. Stuff that is introduced on iOS that becomes fairly standard that you kind of want everywhere. Things like like um, iMessage effects yeah, and stickers, or like right. where like you can do them. Yeah, like you can do it on iOS. You can't do it on the Mac, and there's kind of no clear path of how they would even do that on the Mac in, in the current um, environment. I, so I'll tell you which like one gets me. I love the tap back feature on iOS messages where like somebody sends you an iMessage and you can just press on the thing and give it a thumbs up. 
I love it. It's such a great way to communicate. And instead of sending them an entire message to just say, okay, good or whatever, just put a thumbs up on their last message. Uh, and on the Mac, you can do it, but you've got to like first bring up the, the contextual menu and then tap tap back, and then you get the tap back options. Why aren't those thumbs and and hearts, why aren't they right there in the contextual menu? There should just be a row of them. That's a good question. You can also you can also long click on it like as if you were doing a long press on iOS and that brings up tap back immediately but it's it's yeah, but still who, who the hell funky. wants to do a long uh, long press that sucks yeah and, and like long click on Mac isn't a thing like that's not a thing anybody right. would think to try because that's that's not a gesture in the system um, and anyway so like my point is like it's for features like like you know cellular Macs or or you know like other major platform changes it's hard to see that happening because it seems like the mac doesn't get a lot of those anymore like you can look at recent things and you say oh well the mac got apfs like the new file system that's a big job but the main reason apfs existed is probably for ios devices like that was something that wasn't just investing in the mac that was investing in all of their software platforms including the big ones that that get all the headlines and make most right, of the money like so it's hard to say that was like a mac in the thing. hypothetical in the Whereas, hypothetical world where uh, just just bear with me for a second but if if intel based computers had to use different ssds at at a technical level than arm devices like there's you know let's just say that in this hypothetical world ssds are built into the cpu and there's a fundamental difference in the way intel does it from the way arm ones do it would apfs have been written to support both I think that's a really right, and almost certainly right. It's like I want to say yes that they would have abstracted away because HFS Plus really was long in the tooth. Uh, you know, you can play your little ding there. You only do once a show, uh, but I can't. You're not uh, But my heart is telling me, yeah, I don't think that. I think Max would have been on H, H, HFS Plus forever. <laughs> like it's a fact exactly. that, and, that and they like, use fundamentally the same SSDs that 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 allowed that work to be justified. Yeah. And, and it's, and like when the Mac does get, you know, significant effort put into it, it seems to be like, I I often use the phrase, it's kind of like a drive by update where like some subsystem will be rewritten. Like, you know, we had discovery D a few years ago, I think in Sierra, we had like the USB subsystem. um, And that's why Sierra had so many USB audio bugs Um, in, in high Sierra, the, the, I think the window manager was rewritten to, to be metal based. And so it's, everything is, you know, that's why one of the reasons why it's so much faster in certain ways. Um, But like, and then there's like, there was the PDF subsystem that was rewritten. I think one or two versions ago. Michael saw about that. And it was after. Right. And and the problem is when, Right, like when these subsystems and things get rewritten in Mac OS, they get brought up to like what basically seems like uh, a beta disk utility instability and features. Yeah, the, yeah, the new disk utility that had like you know grammatical errors in the dialogue box and stuff like, and the crazy password authentication. Serious. Like, it seems like these things get rewritten to like you know it's almost done. It, it works for me, and then they ship it, and then they never right. fix it. So. It, it so like it, not only is the Mac not getting like really major platform changing um, work put into it, it seems, but also what work is going into it seems to be done in a more rushed fashion, and it introduces bugs that seem to never really right. get fixed. And that is that to me. That's what's most concerning is not only 
that the platform is not moving forward in ways that I think it could and should, but also that what we have in some ways is getting worse every year as more bugs are added for kind of three-quarters assed rewrites of system components. Well, and it ties in with a couple of other recent rumors. There's the other one that German had where there's Project Marzipan, uh, which is supposedly some kind of way to uh, have universal iPad, iOS, Mac apps, which, you know, we can't get into details on You ATP talked about it. I talked about it on this show, too. I don't think, I think in typical German fashion, there's probably something to it, and it's it at what it actually is is not really interesting or understandable by him and so it's misrepresented um but it very likely could be some kind of either ui kit on mac or ui kit like uh version of app kit on mac and and to make a very long story very short, UIKit is the fundamental framework for making iOS apps, and AppKit is the Mac framework for making apps that dates back to Next in 1988. And UIKit is, unsurprisingly, um, almost universally held as what would, you know, a company... 18 years into AppKit in 2006, what would they change if they had it to do all over again? Um and therefore is you know easier more convenient in certain ways for developers um appkit developers find it much easier to move to uikit and ooh this is suddenly a lot easier and uikit developers such as yourself often find it very frustrating to move the appkit because all of a sudden there's more grunt work to be handled by the developer um and so, you know, something that would enable people with UI kit skills to more easily make native Mac apps would be great um, if done well, in theory. Yeah, I am very excited about that possibility. Uh, that, because, you know, as an iOS developer who kind of reluctantly makes some Mac apps, like I would love to make more Mac apps, uh, but it, 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 it feels like my iOS skills are almost completely yeah. useless. Like it feels like it's a, it's a whole new well, platform because in many ways it, it, for, it kind of forecast is. probably would have been the, a perfect app for that, or maybe would be. Maybe it's so perfect for it that if it comes out, that you'd rewrite it using it if that's basically what it is. Because I think where AppKit really shines over UIKit is on truly complex code bases. You know, think about apps like the you know the big yeah. Omni apps or uh, you know some of panics apps and stuff like that apps that truly are way more complex than anything could, could reasonably get by with on iOS app kit is great at making that manageable. And UI kit is better for sort of, Hey, all I need is just one screen really. And it'll have a list here of things and a couple of buttons and a text field. Yeah. And, and like, I mean, forecast is, is kind of an okay example. A better example is overcast. Mm, yeah. Like, yep. you know, Overcast, like it's most people listen to Overcast on their phones, and by by far, I think it's something like ninety two percent phone, and then the rest is iPad, something like that, like in in that neighborhood. And so it is primarily a phone platform, but because I've written Overcast using a lot of stock UI kit components, it is not that much effort to also maintain an iPad version of it. And you know, it, even though the iPad version is only you know seven or eight percent of the usage. Um, first of all, I use the iPad version, so that's kind of enough of motivation right there. Um, but also, it is 
only about 7-8% more effort to maintain the iPad version to the degree I do. Now, I could make an incredibly awesome, more customized iPad version that would take way more effort, uh, but it probably isn't worth that, but it's fine. It only takes, you know, 5% more effort to reach 5% more people. Hmm. If the Mac became a similar type of extension where, like, I already have this entire iOS code base with iOS UI in a lot of places... I know it wouldn't be the most amazing Mac app in the world in the same way that it isn't the most amazing iPad app in the world. But if I could get a Mac app out of Overcast for 10% more effort, I would totally do that. Whereas right now, it would be nearly 100% more effort and the market is not able to justify yeah. that. Like it's it's not a big enough market for that and it, it's not worth... I don't have that much, that much bandwidth to spare on something like that. Whereas you know, anything that would make it easier... If it's going to make developing for Mac from an iOS code base about as much work, or even if even if it's more work, but it's not that much more work than it is to port an iPhone app to the iPad, that is going to enable a ton more Mac apps. And yeah, they won't be the best Mac apps in the world. There will be a lot of crappy ports, just like there are on iPad. There will be a lot of you know behaviors that are really little too iOSy that don't that feel a little bit weird on the Mac, but it is better for the Mac on a whole if that exists, and it's better for the iPad because what you basically do is you know if there's assuming that that developing an iPad or if assuming if you have an iPhone app that expanding it onto the iPad and the Mac are probably kind of similar in a lot of ways, then what you what you've basically done is you've like almost doubled the value of what a developer would get out of making the app from their iPhone app into this larger type of app. And so you increase the odds that more developers will, and you in, you increase the amount of resources that they're able to, to justify devoting to it. And so what that does is have way more and better apps for both the iPad and the Mac, which both of those platforms could honestly use. Yeah, I, I, the Mac has it's such a great library of longstanding apps you know and i was looking at it the other day and most of the apps that i use have been around for quite a long time uh bb edit transmit they both date back to classic mac os uh omni outliner uh even mars edit is relative is a long-standing app at this point i think brent first shipped it in 2004 5 i don't know but uh you know it, it I don't need a lot of new apps, and these are the apps that I use on. A, you know, Acorn is a rel to me in my mind is still a relatively new app. It's up to like version six point so it's not it's not that new. Yeah, like apps that succeed on the Mac tend to last for a long time, um, and those apps are great and they're all in active development. There's new versions, I think, of just about every one of those apps that I just mentioned, brand new versions that have great new features in just like the last year. BB Edit, Transmit, Mars Edit. Uh, uh, Tweetbot hasn't had a new version in a while on a Mac, but I'm just looking at the Mac apps that I rely on the most. Things uh, has a new version out. Um, but I still, I do feel like, so I'm not worried about those apps. And AppKit's not going anywhere and they can keep using it. But I do worry about when's the last time like somebody shipped a new Mac app that you're like, wow, I love this. There's a new Mac app. And I really do worry that, that that's sort of a canary in the coal mine for the platform, you know, that, and it has so much momentum and so much, you know, and, and sales of Mac hardware are still as like all time highs 
it's all good. But as a platform, I worry about the fact that all the apps that I consider my most used and beloved and best examples of good apps on the platform are like, you know, even the new quote unquote new ones are 10 years old. Yeah. And, you know, if you listen to, um, you know, people like Mike Hurley and, and other like and Federico Vaticci, uh, people who, who are really into getting their primary work done on iOS, one of the most common reasons cited for that is that there's honestly just more action on iOS with like what new apps are coming out, new concepts and apps, new developers becoming prominent, um, new design uh, languages and, and new workflow strategies and everything. Like there's so much more happening on iOS. The Mac is like there's not a lot of of software innovation and, and just software health. Yeah that's really growing on the Mac. Like the, the old apps that have been here forever seem to be doing fine. Not all of them, I, honestly, I just, but, but mo- many of them seem to I be doing fine. I just checked Acorn's About Box. It's copyright 2007 to 2018, so it's 11 years old, and I just acted like it was brand yeah. new. I knew it wasn't, but still, compared to BB Edit <laughs> yeah, right, and Transmit, like, it, time compared flies. to BB Edit and Transmit, it's Time flies when your platform's being neglected. Uh, where's Transmit? Tran- <laughs> Transmit's yeah, so like, copyright 1997 to 2017. And BB Edit... <laughs> I was in middle BB school. BB Edit, I know, I first started using BB Edit in 1992, and so uh, <laughs> it's pretty old. Yeah. Yeah. So like my my concern with the Mac is that if they don't do something like this, if if they leave the status quo where you have the Mac with its own, you know, APIs for everything that are older and clunkier, you know, though richer in a lot of ways, but still, you know, older and clunkier and basically turning off a lot of modern developers. Um, if you if you leave this the way it is, I think we're just going to keep seeing a continuation of what we see now, which is like. Not a lot of new developers coming to the Mac, not a lot of new apps, not a lot of new concepts. All the action continuing to happen. I on honestly iOS. and, and I, that's that's not good if for the I Mac. I could chew the ear of Apple's executive team on what to do with the Mac going forward. Honestly, I really think and, and that's why I'm happy, I'm optimistic about this Marzipan rumor, is that I would rather see them focus almost entirely on stuff for Mac developers or would-be Mac developers than actual, you know, here's a thing that you, the user, get from Apple right when you install the OS features. Like, you, the features yeah. are all there. There's windows, there's menus, there's buttons. It, 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 but I feel like enabling people to making it, uh, doing for, you know, like when, when Coco was first came out and it was just like, man, you can make an app that is rich and has all, you know, complete rich text editor and all of these features for free um, it, and just focus on the features you want to add for your app. And, and you really could like a smaller team of developers or one person could make an app that one person could never make on windows. Cause you just didn't, you, you didn't get that much with the framework. And I feel like at this point they need to level that up again and make it like that again. I just wrote this week about how like, to me, the biggest threat to the Mac is this proliferation of non-native apps that people just accept as being, well, that's what an app is. These electron apps and shit like that's the way Slack works. 
I, I think it's a threat yeah. to the platform that if the longer it goes on where that's accepted, where a, a 300 megabyte download app that consumes 500 megabytes of RAM just for opening one window and is slow and doesn't use native <laughs> controls and breaks a bunch of native uh, conventions and uses weird moon man keyboard shortcuts. If that's just accepted as the way that it is, then the Mac loses its reason for existence because any system, a, a, a Chrome a Chromebook is as good as that because the same app will run with the same keyboard shortcuts. All you need is something that runs a, a web view. And if that's, if that's what desktop computers devolve to where it's really not about the OS, but just about the form factor of having a clamshell laptop that opens up and a keyboard that's connected and a trackpad, the Mac OS loses its reason for existence. The whole reason that the Mac thrived or or survived in the rough years and thrived in later years is that it was better and the reason it was better was that it had better apps and if new apps aren't coming out that 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 follow in the same mold as their predecessors it's it's a long-term problem for the platform like a serious problem yeah and and because you know and when you have something you know like like you have apps that are just like web views shoved into you know standalone apps for the mac uh, that you know that's that's only a continuation of what we had a few years ago before this became so common which is basically like the solution was on your phone you can use a cool native app and when you're on your computer you just have to use our web page yep. like yeah. that that's just well, sucks and and it, I know why it's it, done that way, but it, it sucks. It depends and, what the and, app or service is, though. Like OpenTable, I'm fine with OpenTable being nothing more than a web thing on the Mac. I don't want right. to. I wouldn't install an OpenTable like, app on my Mac. Why would I? I'm, sure, but what about things like Netflix? Right, right. Like Netflix should be yeah. a native app, um, but instead it's a web view. Like and you know Slack is kind of a special case because it's like. It's kind of a web view on all the platforms, I think. But uh, but it's uh, like there are a lot of apps where you know they're they're willing to invest the effort into an iOS app because the market supports that and the platform really makes it hard to do anything else uh, in a good way. Um, so like you know they're willing to do that, but when it comes to the Mac, they're just like ah eh, well you know just web view is fine because the the it, it isn't worth them making a whole separate app kit code base just for this portion of the user base when they can just throw the web page right. at them. So anything that Apple can do to help companies leverage their iOS code base that they're writing anyway to also make a Mac app fairly easily will pay off big time because lots of companies are doing that calculus. They're saying, well, it's not worth making a whole Mac app from nothing, from scratch, and not being able to reuse anything, really. Um, But they would have a very different calculus if if the barrier was lower, if you could share more of that iOS code. And, you know, I, I wouldn't expect it to be like, you know, a new checkbox in Xcode, just make Mac app and that's it, you're done. You know, it's not going to be that easy, but I, I I hope it can be more like what it is to have an app go from iPhone to iPad, where it does take some work to get it to be usable and to get it to be nice, but it's at least possible to do without rewriting your entire UI from scratch. All right, let me take a break here and thank our third and final sponsor of the evening, to good friends at Squarespace. Squarespace. Look, when you want to make a website, what are you going to do? You're going to start coding. You're going to start opening up a, a, a web hosting account. Are you going to start uh, writing PHP, HTML, all that stuff, the way websites were made back in the Stone Ages? You could. 
You could do that. You know what would be a lot easier way to do it is start at Squarespace. Go to Squarespace and spend half an hour making a new website. Sign up. You get a free account. You get a free trial just to start going. Squarespace handles everything. They are the host. They provide the templates you can start with. They provide the the widgets that you can add to your page to add something like a store or to add like an image portfolio. And then you can just upload the images and it'll go right in. Uh, It is so much easier and takes so much work out of the process, especially if you are like a technically minded person who listens to the show and people come to you and they're like, Hey, I need a website. What am I supposed to do? You can build them a website at Squarespace, get them started and then just hand it off to them and they can take care of everything after that and do the updates. Uh, back in the day when I was like uh, doing it, consulting and making websites for people, it's like, I'd make the website and that was like, I thought was all the work. And then I would just get all this continuing consulting work from them just to like, do like content updates. And it was like, well, thanks for the work, but I'm, it's like you're paying me to just be a typist. It's like with Squarespace, a normal person, you can hand it over to them. It's a WYSIWYG interface, and they can take care of updating content, adding new posts if you give them a blog or something like that uh, on their Squarespace site. It, it really is so much easier. And Squarespace has amazing technical support that they can just – a normal person can just call them up and get help and – Instead of calling you, they'll call Squarespace. It's such a great product. Let me tell you, I like to do this because they sponsor the show a lot. I keep telling you, more websites that you use on a regular basis are Squarespace sites than you would believe. And I don't know what is wrong with me that I do it. I guess it's because Squarespace sponsors the show so often. Uh, but I, I, every so while, I, I just view source and look for some of the things in the HTML that indicate that it's a Squarespace site. And I'm like, damn, I... I this is this looks nothing like any other site I've seen. It's totally branded to the company. It doesn't look like it came from a cookie cutter template. Um, so I had relatives in town uh, from both sides of the family recently. They they wanted to come to Philly, uh, stay here at uh, Daring Fireball headquarters for the Eagles victory parade last week here in Philadelphia because you uh, couldn't get a hotel. City was nuts. There were three million people at this damn parade. Um, what do they want to eat the next night? Well, of course, everybody wanted to get cheesesteaks because that's what you get in Philadelphia. Well, there's a, uh, great new cheesesteak place pretty close to us here in, uh, Philadelphia cleavers, C L E A V E R S. Um, and their website is cleaversphilly.com. You can go there. It's a beautiful website. They have a beautiful restaurant and they make delicious, uh, sandwiches and they have great sides. Uh, I love that you're doing an ad for cheesesteak. Yeah, well, guess what? Guess <laughs> what? View source. It's Squarespace site. It is so great. It, it's it's a great website. It, you know, what do you want? You want uh, a menu? You want to see pictures of their food? It's great. Go there, check it out. Check out to see what you can make with Squarespace. Go to cleaversphilly.com. Uh, when you want to make your own website, though, where do you go? Well, you go to squarespace.com and you enter offer code. Now, this is what you do when you're ready to pay. You can just go there, go to Squarespace. That's all they care that you do to get started. Take their free trial um, and build what you want to build. And then when you go to pay, that's when you've got to remember this code. This is the thing. You've got to have long-term memory for this. All you need to do to get started is go to squarespace.com. There's no special URL. But then when you go to pay, when you sign up, just remember the offer code talk show. 
no the just talk show and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So that's Squarespace. This is where you go to build a new website. I'm telling you that the reason these people can make these great cheesesteaks is they didn't waste time uh, building a website. They, you know, other than going to Squarespace and putting their design on it, they're not sitting there writing PHP. They're sitting there uh, uh, cooking up steaks. So go to squarespace.com and remember that offer code talk show. No, the my thanks to Squarespace. That's not your favorite cheesesteak place. What's your favorite? You don't like Campos either. It's you go to the one that's a couple doors down from Campos when you're here. Yeah, I don't. I forget what it's called, but it's it's the good. Yeah, one. but uh, Campos is good too. <laughs> Campos is really good. You got to go to. Or next time you're here, though, we'll take you to Cleavers. Cleavers is. I'm telling you, it's really good. Now, which, which is the one that I'm like the famous one that I don't go to that I'm supposed to be going to? Every time I take a picture, okay, the one I like is Sunny's. Sunny's is good. Sunny's yeah. is my favorite one. But you've yeah. never been to Campos. So Campos is every good. Every time. People will probably tell you to go to, um, well, there's Pat's and Gino's, I, I hear, but then there's the one on South Street. What the hell is it called? It's, yeah. I hear Jim's, Jim's on South Jim's. Street uh, in Dallas and Dallas Sandra's. Are those things I should care about? You don't want to go Jim's. Jim's, uh, if you Google it, Jim's has a lot of problems where every year or so they get busted for selling drugs. Uh it's awesome. and in my opinion, it's not a great steak. It's really not. Uh, it's a see when I have Sonny's, I think why I'm not in Philly that much. Why when I come here would I not get this? Well, like it's so good when I have it. I'm just like I I wouldn't want to like waste a meal. Yeah, but you're a couple of miles not away. Eating you're, that you could save you could <laughs> you could save a lot of driving or whatever by going to Cleavers. You should but see and you should try more than one. I'm telling you, Cleavers is the way to go. If you wanted to tr- bust out and try one on the other side of Broad Street, just because they, you know, and it's it's similar sort of small shop atmosphere. Uh, Jim's on South Street is designed to get like the most people through in the shortest amount of time. Like when they're busy, they, I don't know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they serve 50, 60 people an hour. Whereas, you know, like when you go to Sunny's, it's like just going into a busy lunch place. There's not like a crazy line out the door. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but anyway, I I had a thing. I, what's what's the shortest show? I don't we've know. Ever you done? and I often go long. <laughs> Although I think the all time record is me and Ben Thompson. Uh, Todd Vaziri just updated his uh, talk show episode length chart. Although I don't think he posted it publicly, he sent it to me privately. It's actually been going. Yeah, but we did one that was so long you split it into two. Oh, so I I don't know. I don't know think. think Would that actually count? I don't think you got credit for that one. No, he's he's going by episodes. Um, (laughs) Here, let me see here. I'll send this to you. Where'd you go? There you are. Um, I had a thing that kind of ties into what we were just talking about. Let me see if where I have this in the notes. Oh, well, you were talking about to-do apps on ATP recently, and I wouldn't mind talking to you about this recently. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. But I had this thing. I, I've uh, I've moved. For years, I was using an app called ITA, ITA, um, from nice Mohawk software for managing. I, I had like a list of things I take with me every time I leave the house for like a trip. Um, and I've recently moved that into Apple Notes and put it in one of the notes and used their checklist feature. Um, just to sort of have one less, one fewer app to use. And it seems like it might be sort of put out to pasture. Those guys are working on some cool new, um, home energy monitoring stuff. Um, I don't think it has been updated for iPhone 10. 
etc. So anyway, doing a checklist in Apple Notes, it's not really a to-do app type thing. It's a little bit more simple, but it's a nice way to have this note. And every time, and the way I update it is every time I um, leave the house for a trip and wind up thinking, oh, I should have brought whatever, then I just add it to the end of the list and I'll never forget it again. But the thing is, and indeed it is not updated for the iPhone X, um, after I pack for the trip, I either, as I pack everything on my list, I check it off. And if it's something that's not relevant, like I'll put swimsuit, but I'm going somewhere where I'm not going to swim. Well, I'll just check it off because I know I don't need it. So checking it off the list either means I've packed it, it's in a bag that I know I'm not going to forget, or I don't need it. What do you do for your next trip? Well, what you want to do is uncheck all of those check marks, right? And start all over. On iOS, as far as I can tell, the only way to do that in Apple Notes, whether you're on iPad or phone, is to go through each goddamn item and uncheck everything. Whereas in the Mac app, uh, in Notes, you can, there's a menu command where you can uh, uncheck everything. It's like mark as checked. And then if you select them all, you can do mark as unchecked, like marking multiple messages as unread. It's a menu command in, hmm, in the about format this. menu, which seems like something a computer program should do, right? Computers are supp- supposed that. to alleviate us of tedium. Isn't that great, right? But it's, there's no way to do it on iOS. So these people like Mike Hurley and all these other, the, the iPad lifestyle people, I believe them. I, I'm not disputing that they're having leading a happier life for them using an iPad as their main computer. But it, it, that, that, that's the sort of thing that makes the iPad a complete non-starter as my main computing platform. Because I, I, the fact that I would have to do that and that on the Mac version, I can just hit a menu command and have it all unchecked all at once is exactly why I like using a computer as opposed to, you know, mimeographing 20 copies of the same checklist on paper. <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, in their, in the iPad user's defense, like there are apps that do this better. Like, so like the, the solution for, for something like that, where it's like, well, you can't do this very well on the iPad where, where the Mac can do it. The solution on the iPad is probably, well, if you use this other app, this can do that. Um, so like it's, it's not that it's impossible, but it's often that you have to like seek out a more power user app or a more obscure well, app uh, to, to do these kinds to of things. To me, it's, it comes down to the most mundane and overlooked, and it's because it's been here since ni- right since 1984 when the first Mac shipped, but the menu bar. And I'm not saying that iOS should get a Mac-style menu bar because it wouldn't work, but the fact that Mac apps have a menu bar and you can put commands in there, and, and you know, in recent years, in the old days, Mac apps didn't have toolbars at all. Like the only thing in the window Chrome were the controls to close the window, zoom the window, um, or like minimize the window at some point. Um, when they didn't even have that at first. Um, and anything you wanted to do was mostly done by using menu commands. That was like the main way of doing it. And I get it because they're not, they're hidden. They're all, everything in a menu is, in a menu bar is one, at least one level down, right? Like if you want to save, you can't just click one button. You have to go to file and then go down to save. I get it that that even one level of indirection is going to, 
put some people off who, who are less likely to be technically minded and normal people don't memorize keyboard shortcuts. That's all fine. I get it. And I think the overall trend to putting the main functions of an application as visible buttons that are always present in the window is a good trend. Um, but the max menu bar, the fact that it's still there and still useful is, is and, and it organized if well done and well designed organizes things in a way that you know where to look for them, uh, is such a powerful feature for something like uncheck all of these checkboxes, which, you know, maybe most people will never need or want to use, or it wouldn't even occur to them that it would exist, exist, but there it is a feature for me who wants to do it and thinks I should be able to do it. Oh, there it is. And there's no, there's yeah, no good it, way in an, I, the long, the point of my story is I can't think of a good way to put that many commands, even just from the simple Apple notes app. How would you put as many commands that Apple notes on Mac has in the iPad version? Where would you put those commands? Yeah. I mean, this is, this has been one of the big challenges to trying to bring touchscreens into like the the more like pro computing markets or or into more like you know pro software uses and you know it's it's a it's a problem that I don't think we've really figured out yet as an industry like how to design touchscreen based apps in a way that can support the level of complexity and functionality that we can have on yep. desktops and there's there's two different problems to this I think like you know one of them is that just you have far less precision on in the input than you do it like on a on a pc whether it's a laptop or a desktop whether it's windows or a mac on a pc you have a very precise pointing device you know in in the, you know either a mouse or a, t- a trackpad or whatever where you can you can really get down to like the pixel level precision there so y- you can cram a lot more like click targets on screen than you can by using you know our fat fingers on on a 10 inch screen with a touch screen and then the other problem that you have is you know and and you have you have this massive keyboard where you have a hundred keys and conventions that have been going on for decades of things like holding down certain modifiers with certain other keys to you know do certain common actions um and, and you know ios has some support for common keyboard shortcuts but not great support for it and there's also like there's conventions that you can do with the with the keyboard and mouse that have not yet been really established on ios so for instance like you know, power users pretty quickly discover things like you can drag a box around a whole bunch of icons and then pick them all up at once. Or you can, you know, if you're on one mail message, you can hold down shift and click one really far away from it and it selects all of them in the meantime. Like, you know, you you can do things like that that allow you to very efficiently work in, in the Mac and PC type uh, form factors that the touch devices just haven't developed those standards yet. And in some ways it's kind of hard to see how they can because of the limitations of their input, just not being, you know, obviously it does certain things better, like, you know, drawing and stuff like that. But because you don't have the incredibly precise pointing device of, of a mouse or, and and a mouse cursor, um, and you don't have the incredibly like rich button filled, like hundred key keyboard, it's just very, very different. And then the other problem is a visual design problem of you know like like you know your menu bar thing it's like how do you expose lots of complex features uh, or or just how do you how do you expose lots of features in a UI on a touchscreen it's you you don't have a lot of the 
discoverability conventions that we've had on PCs. You know, you don't have hovering the mouse pointer right. over something to get a tooltip to explain what it is. You don't have right-clicking, really. You have, like, force touching or long pressing, but those are... It's it's very hard to... I mean, honestly, I guess right-clicking has the problem. It's very hard to know, like, what you can force touch and what you can long press. And there there's not a lot of, like, conventions of how to show users that. And then the way that you accommodate things, like, that, that you would typically get, like, in a menu bar where, like, you know, a menu bar has a very, very small amount of screen space devoted to it. But you can click on it, and then you get expanded these lists of commands that, that they themselves can have their own sub-commands that expand out when you hover over them. So you can cram a whole bunch of functionality into a relatively small amount of screen space that is out of the way when you don't need it, etc. In addition, it's, it really enables power use because it shows you what the keyboard shortcuts are right. for these things. So if you keep going to the same menu commands over and over again, eventually you might notice those little characters after it and figure out, oh, that's the symbol on the keyboard. Oh, I can hit Command-T and do this thing, right? And so it, it, it enables both the, the like, you know, progressive disclosure and management of lots of functionality as well as it kind of shows you as a power user how to get faster at these things and on touch devices we really don't have good conventions for these yet we don't have good ways to show power users how to do things faster we don't show we don't really have concept of things like keyboard shortcuts being incredibly discoverable um i know on ipad you can just hold down command on an external keyboard and it shows a little overlay but that that only applies to the iPad and only when you're having a keyboard attached and and you know a lot of people are using a lot of right. touch devices that that don't have keyboards <laughs> attached to them that way and and so we and we don't also have in our UI paradigms the amount of like progressive disclosure that you get from from a menu like we don't have that really in in our design vocabulary on TouchOS uh, uh, software yet. And instead, TouchOS things tend to do that with just having lots of modes yep. where, like, well, you tap this toolbar icon and then the whole interface changes to be this mode. And then it's, and that just gets very confusing very quickly. And even then, you're usually using iconography, not text, to show what the actions are, which makes it, in some ways, it makes it more accessible if, like, you know, if, if it's not in your language or if you don't understand some of the some of the terminology used. But it also makes it a lot harder to skim and browse and, and kind of learn the ins and yeah. outs of for a lot of people. So we, we have, like, you know, it took us a long time to figure this stuff out on desktops uh, or on PCs, rather. And I think Tux just it, – it's just too early in the, in the Tux OSs and in how we design software for right. them to know how to how to solve some of these problems because you can't just take the solutions from PCs and translate them right over in a lot of ways because it just doesn't yeah. fit. And it's paradigm. not quite true that you could use the menu bar to explore the entire functionality of an app. And like a perfect example of that is like in Adobe apps, uh, like Photoshop. If, if, if <laughs> the paradigms of good well, user even interface. going back to the early days of Photoshop when it was a truly a good Mac app, but you could, you can always, as long back as I can remember, let's say you have an image and you're zoomed in way bigger than your screen, right? But you still want to pan around the image. You can just hold down the space bar wherever you are and the cursor, mouse cursor will change to the Mickey Mouse hand. And then you can click and drag to just drag the canvas around screen. Well, that's not a menu command. That's something you somehow you have to learn that. And for whatever reason, Quark Express back in the day, the desktop image 
our layout program, desktop like publishing program that at one point I practically lived my life in had the same feature, but they used the option key, which I actually always liked better than spacebar. Um, cause it always felt like it should be a modifier and just plain option clicking on something was completely unused, right? Command clicking, open links and control clicking, open control menus, option clicking was right there, but you had to learn that. But for the most part though, if you just want to learn what's everything this app can do, if you just go through the menu bar, you'll find it all right. And I'll give you a perfect example of that I've, I've lost that curiosity almost, or, or the instinct to like, when I have a new app to do that. Because I even me as somebody who thinks of himself primarily as a Mac user, I've gotten so accustomed to the look. If it's not an icon in the window that I can click, don't think about it. Like when I was looking for that uh, uncheck all thing in Notes, I found another feature that I had no idea was there. This is probably new to almost everybody who I'm going to tell this to because you didn't even think to look at it. But in Apple Notes on like Sierra and High Sierra, you can open a note in its own window, right, by double clicking it. And then if you go to the window menu, there's a float on top command, and that window will stay floating on top of all other windows. Did you know you could do that? Wait, I'm doing so. Open oh. a note, open any <laughs> note you want. Float on top. Look and at now that. it's like an always yeah. on top thing. Look and at so that. You can, you know, you can keep a little skinny window open on the side while you're doing other work, gathering notes, and it's always there for you to like drag stuff to. It's fantastic. But there's no there's no that's other way awesome. to do it other than to go to the menu bar. Anyway, that's my I, I really feel like that's the biggest one of the biggest problems facing the iPad, especially like because I, I don't think you want apps with extra, you know, the, the even the biggest phone possible, whatever, whoever in China is making a six point whatever inch phone. It, it's a small enough screen where the maximum complexity of an app is dictated by the size of the screen. But there's no reason in theory that a 11-inch or 13-inch iPad shouldn't be able to support apps of the same complexity as a Mac. But the, the UI metaphors just aren't there for where to put those commands that can't be shown on screen at all time. Yeah, like where do you where do you put a whole bunch of functionality and also how do you show users how to right. use the app in a more powerful right. way? So with, with you know what you know the equivalent of keyboard shortcuts and things like that, like how do you show users what is possible? Yeah, uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, what else did I have to talk about this week? Oh, I want to talk about the sad state of Apple TV apps. <laughs> I really want to talk about. So do this. I actually. I I don't know. How, what are you? Are you going to release a three hour episode? Like how are you? Uh, do this? What are we at? I see we got interrupted by a Skype drop before, so I don't know where we are. I. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to be at about All three right, hours. Well, well, we'll be close. <laughs> well, there you go. You get your money's for your. Okay. You get your money's worth out of this episode. Um, <laughs> I'm finally going to get counted in your in your episode. Yeah, I'll tell Vizuri to, to update his chart. <laughs> the sad state of Apple TV apps. Okay. And this popped into my bubbled up. I, I wrote recently about the, the long-awaited Amazon Prime app, and I was just telling you. In fact, uh, all of those episodes of Top Gear. The reason I hadn't watched it until now, not Top Gear. Uh, Grand Tour. By the way, have you realized how clever the name Grand Tour is? For people who don't know the backstory, the three guys who did the Grand Tour for years did a BBC show called Top Gear, and it was very popular around the world. And then one of the guys, um, Jeremy Clarkson, uh, got was at a steakhouse and having dinner with one of their producers. And I don't know what happened. Nobody really seems to know what happened. But he punched the guy, <laughs> punched the guy out. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was it, that wasn't quite what it, yeah it's close enough well, it, it, I, yeah he he punched uh, he punched a staff member uh and then therefore like the bbc basically right. had to fire and the him other two and, guys in so solidarity left and, and they went to amazon and they've started what's effectively the same show do you realize how clever it is if you're well known for a show called top gear how perfect a name grand tour is because it's you're taking the same two letters t and g and just replacing them and there's something at least in my mind where they get filed like right next to each other in the hash table in my mind they sound the same grand tour (laughs) top gear they have like the same cadence like like for three guys who couldn't take the name top gear with them the name grand tour is uh, it's unbelievably perfect. I, I, it's it really crazy. And I find myself saying, even though I never even watched Top Gear, I find myself saying Top Gear all the time just because it's, it, like I said, it's like in the same, it's like coll- like a hash table collision in my brain because it's so perfect. Anyway, uh, the whole reason I put off watching it, even though you guys started talking about it when their Amazon show launched last year, was because I couldn't watch it on my goddamn Apple TV. And it's not like I'm spiteful and only watch stuff on apple tv it's just that switching to something else never seems convenient enough um yeah it's nicer to watch right. on apple so TV. now that there's an amazon prime app on apple tv and even though it's a garbage app uh, which i wrote about it's just it's horrible it's and it's just a direct port from the uh, the prime app on all these other platforms it's terrible it's just really really a bad app disobeys so many conventions of apple tv doesn't work like any other normal apple tv app but the one saving grace that it has is it does integrate with apple's apple tv app so you can just go to the apple's tv app and it seems to do a good job of saying hey you just watched episode three of season two of this Do you want to watch season four and i don't really have to interact with the amazon app um, but anyway, this week YouTube came out with a new, an updated version of their Apple TV app. And it's like the exact same thing as the story as the Amazon app, where it's just a direct port of their youtube.com slash TV web app. It doesn't look or act anything like an Apple TV app. It doesn't work well with the, whatever you think of the Apple TV remote control. It's certainly this app isn't meant to be used with it. And it doesn't even make noise as you move around. You know how like on Apple TV, you go up, down, left, right. It goes beep, 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 beep. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, doesn't make any noise. I, and I have a this stupid TV setup where I don't have one button to hit to turn everything on. I've got to hit a button to turn on the TV and a button to turn on my sound system. And then like, I always have to wake up the Apple TV. So that's the third button. Um, so when it wasn't making noise, I just assumed that when I went to turn on the sound system, I didn't hit it. And now I'm like, well, shit, the green light's on. Oh, maybe I have to turn the volume up. And I turn the volume way up. And if, then I turn the volume to, like, you know, too loud. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit, they shipped an Apple TV app that doesn't make noise as you navigate. Yeah, it, it, this is – so I posed a question in our notes here, and I think it might be a discussion. Yeah. Like, were – in retrospect, and, and I'm not saying Apple should have known this, but it just as, as a question now, in retrospect, was this model of letting everybody make their own apps for the Apple TV actually the right model? Was it was this actually better than the previous Apple TV software, like before they had the fourth gen, what was it, yeah. 2015? Um, before that one, the, app, the old Apple TVs, before they were apps, Apple basically wrote all of the, like, 
kind of channels that that appeared there, uh, and they were all based on you know b- uh, like a common code base where it was basically like being fed like a list of things Wasn't that could it, be played uh, and there were you know some structures tvml or something like that tv markup language it was sort of like you, well that's the, that's the oh, new well, one i thought that was I, I the old anyway one. so it may it, i don't think we ever knew the name of what yeah. the old one was like it, it was basically it was like a version of yeah, xml that would it was like just render, an xml file and, right. and right and so all apple tv video sources in the previous generation of Apple TVs, all would work the same way. Like you'd have the same kind of menu structure. Everything would look basically the same. You'd just be accessing, oh, the, now you're running HBO's content. Now you're running, you know, so and so's content, and and it all looked and worked in the standard way, which is how TV stuff had always worked before. Like your cable box, like you know, every provider who does things on a cable service doesn't have their own app that like you don't have to navigate to. Like, if you want to watch a show on a different channel on a cable service, it works exactly the same way as every other channel that you are that you have access to in your channel guide and whatever. Like, everything works the same. And so when Apple moved to the fourth gen, you know, there was a lot of, you know, questions about how they should do this and people saying what they should and shouldn't do. And what they did at the time, which I think was probably the right move with everything we knew at the time, was now we just make everything apps. And... Video providers and, and and other people can just make their own app however they want it to be, and that's how they can show that that's how they can bring their content to the Apple TV, which is great in a number of ways. Like it lowers barriers, it makes it so that you know Apple doesn't have to hand create every one of these video providers channels on the TV. Like the people can make their own apps and they can they can make them really awesome. The problem is when big companies make their own apps, they often don't make them really awesome. And they often have their, have their own goals in mind. Like, you know, Amazon wants the Amazon app to look the same way on all platforms. Netflix, you know, same thing. YouTube, probably the same thing. Like, so what we have now is companies that they control the entire experience rather than Apple. And what they've chosen to do is to make kind of a crappy Apple TV experience. Uh, not even kind of now it's there's crappy. no more recourse for that. and they both uh, uh yeah i think crappy. amazon at least is using standard playback controls for the video stream like once video is streaming it's a standard apple tv video stream but youtube uses their own video playback controls and they don't support i mean things that are fundamental to the platform like being able to tap not click just tap the uh touchpad on the remote to bring up like hey where am i that doesn't work it doesn't do anything mm-hmm. It's it's so literally tied to the idea of a generic shitbox TV connected thing with a D-pad and a select button that anything other than that on the Apple TV remote doesn't work, including just fundamental to the platform, just tap on the thing to see where I am. And the playback controls look all weird. And they even bring up like a stupid picker, you know, the way that YouTube is so obsessed with always... No matter where you are in a video, you could be watching like a half hour YouTube video and you're only 10 minutes into it. But if you do anything, they immediately present you with eight options for other things you might want to watch right now. Right. Like, (laughs) I don't know how somebody with a genuine attention uh, deficit problem, how they could ever watch anything on YouTube. Like, I, I don't have any kind of issues in that regard, like in a clinical sense. But even I feel badgered. Like, I just wanted to pause the show. Why are you sent telling me about eight other things to watch and taking up a, a quarter of the screen? All I wanted to do is freaking pause and maybe see where I am in the video. <laughs> uh, so the other thing I did, I told you earlier t- 
earlier in the show, I fired up the, uh, the fire TV because I wanted to see what the hell's going on with YouTube over there. And so they have a youtube.com, at least on my fire TV. Uh, it was like one of the top two or three suggestions for things to do. And I was like, Ooh, that's interesting. And it didn't have the YouTube logo. It was even a blue rectangle and not red. So they weren't even, you know, trying to to impersonate YouTube. It's just a blue rectangle that said youtube.com. And I clicked it and it said, you have two ways of watching YouTube on fire TV. You can download Firefox or you can download uh, silk. That's uh, Amazon's web browser. Uh, so I downloaded both. And when you fire up either Mozilla or silk, uh, both of them assume that the only reason they exist is to show YouTube. <laughs> like they're effectively both YouTube apps. <laughs> so like you download Silk on the fire on on the thing, and it's just like you want to watch YouTube, right? And they're like, yeah. And then it just turns into the YouTube app, and it looks exactly like the Apple TV app. So running YouTube as a website in a web browser on on the 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 Amazon Fire. Fire TV box is exactly the same interface as Apple TV with the small exception of at the very least on Apple TV, the currently selected item does have the, the 3d, you know, pops out effect and you can kind of jiggle it around a little bit, but every other thing is exactly the same. So somehow and my, I, I guess is that the new YouTube app on Apple TV somehow got an exception and is running a web view, even though the, WebView isn't really part of the Apple, uh, Apple TV SDK, and I think that they, or it might it might not technically be a WebView. Right. Like maybe it's some kind of like thing where they're using JavaScript right. under their hood to like you know do most of their logic, but maybe they're rendering I, I, it differently. But you know it, it doesn't necessarily have right. to be a WebView to do that. But I, yeah, it, it's it's still some kind of cross platform right. garbage. And um, the other funny thing about the Prime app, which is a great example, was. Um, the people who still have the previous generation Apple TV, you know, the the one from three generations ago, the one before it was running on a, a version of iOS, um, they got a Prime app too, a, a software update, and it's exactly like you said. It's it's just looks like every other standard Apple Apple TV app, just with Prime content. So they get a, in my opinion, way better prime experience on their apple tv for sticking <laughs> with the old apple tv than anybody with a new apple tv gets because they get like a, na a truly native to apple tv experience i i think that these apps have, are are a disaster i think that the state of apple tv yeah uh outside of apple's own apps is really pretty bad netflix is okay i would say and i watch it a lot of netflix i think it could be yeah it's okay I, at, at the very yeah. least with netflix i don't feel like the people who made the app aren't actually apple tv users themselves i feel like they could go more standard and just keep netflix branding as logos and nobody's going to be confused about what app they're in um but it's it's heads and shoulders. It's at least trying to be a good Apple TV app, whereas the Prime one and YouTube in particular, it's it's just unbelievable how little attention they pay to what Apple TV is trying to do as as a, a platform in terms of user experience. Yeah, and like you know, it's it's almost it's you know tying it back to the the beginning of this conversation five hours ago. Um, it's almost like you know. When the watch launched and it had its whole terrible app platform, like, you know, in retrospect, it probably shouldn't have had that. 
I feel like this a lot of that same thing applies to Apple TV apps where like, you know, it launched with this brand new app uh, model and this brand new app library and framework, uh, you know, about two and a half years ago. And they they presented it as though we were going to be doing like our shopping and browsing for hotels and stuff on Apple TV and doing all sorts of things. But I think what most people do on the Apple TV is right. watch video. And a few of them play games, but even that has been pretty badly neglected. Um, so, like, it, what we really have is m- still mostly just a video device that happens to occasionally have some games, but that's about it. And, it, w- and it, they launched it with two different APIs for how you could make your user interface. One of them is called TVML, and that is basically how the old one worked. But it lets you create not just something that looks like the old one. It lets you create stock interfaces really easily that look and work just like the built-in ones. Uh, one of the biggest examples of this, I believe, is the Plex app, I think is still a TVML huh. app. And and so that and that's why the Plex app looks like all of Apple's built-in stuff. Like it just works the same way. You know, it's it's it uses stock stuff. And you, what you can do is you can have your own native like binary code running like the logic libraries under it all. But the UI is being rendered by this layer that is, you know, basically like XML driven and is using stock components for everything. Then they also let you build entire applications using a, a basically a slim down version of UI kit. Um, so they they have these two different ways you can build inter- interfaces for your apps on Apple TV. I think in retrospect, and again, I, I don't expect them to have known this at the time. I'm not saying this is a big mistake that they did. Um, but I think in retrospect, the better move and the way to make a better experience for their customers would have been to only launch TVML-based apps and to force all third-party apps to use the TVML uh, interface th- layer. Um, and maybe they could have an exception, like maybe the games right. wouldn't exactly. Have to do That's it. what I was going to say. But, is if your like, app's primary yeah, purpose but, is to play video, you need to use this framework. And there's, you can style yeah, like, it. You know, you can add your decorations to make it look branded. And I don't think that was ever a problem on the old Apple TV. I was never confused when I was in the HBO app or uh, whichever right. one it's called. I'm like you. I can't. I I can't remember. I I need. I need the opposite one of you because we have still have cable TV service. So I need the HBO app. <laughs> I think I think I'm HBO Go, but maybe you're HBO. I don't know HBO. Maybe I'm now. Go I don't now. Know. I can't believe that you, John Syracuse is yelling at his podcast player right now. I always cracks me up that the two of them together are Go now, which is I get angry and that's what I want to do. But I never got confused on the old Apple TV that I was in the HBO app. It looked like HBO. It had HBO branding and colors and felt HBO-y, but it always uh, always also felt like an Apple TV app. Right, exactly. And and I, I think what we've seen now with a couple of years' experience in this world, it, we've seen that these big content providers are not really able to make yeah. good apps. Like they, they keep showing us that over and over again. That like the more they deviate from the stock stuff on the Apple TV, the worse their apps tend to get. And and I think it's it really is a better user experience if the makers of these apps have less flexibility in what they can do on this platform because the the Apple TV is not an iPhone. It's not an iPad. We don't have the ability to have like rich, awesome interactions with this. We are controlling a you know six foot wide TV 
from a little tiny remote in our hands that's like five buttons. Like it's it's a limited interaction. There's only so much we can do. We need the system to have really like a strong UI uh, consistency and and leadership from from the platform vendor and and just have it be perfectly optimized and tailored for what it really is. And we're not getting that now. What we're getting instead is really like crap, you know, least common denominator platforms designed by marketing people yeah. in these uh, in these big video providers that are all different from each other. And it, it and you know, like you said earlier about like how the, you know, there's not much reason for the Mac to exist if all the software is just web views. Like there's not much benefit to the Apple TV if every video app on it is just a clone of the way that service looks on every other TV stick and the built-in crappy apps yep. on your TV. Like th- there's no, it, why does Apple TV exist for them? So I, I think, I, I don't know if Apple can put this cat back in the bag, but honestly, I think a TV, a, a TV ML only policy for video apps in the Apple TV would be a huge benefit to Apple TV yeah. users. I almost feel it's a case where with the whole idea of app stores in general, uh, ever since the iPhone first shipped its app store 10 years ago, um, it, it, you know, the, the, the reasonable and in some cases, many cases over the 10 years warranted concern is, wow, this is a dangerous idea putting all this, this, in, this yes or no power in the hands of a company as capricious as Apple, you know, that they're going to say no to apps that, you know, for reasons that most of us would disagree with, um, you know, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be too hard. You know, there should be let the market sort it out sort of thinking. Um, and they're going to be dicks about this. I, I would honestly say, at least on Apple TV, they're they're not. I wish they were being more of a dick. I wish they were like, what is this hot pile of garbage, Amazon? Go back, you know, get get this out of our face and, you know, do this right. You know, I, I it's I, I don't know. It's it. I know that the way computers have always, you know, used to work in the old days, pre-app store was whatever you wrote, you wrote, it was you're the developer, you can make it, you want to make a shitty app, make a shitty app. But I thought the whole point of app stores was, of, of from Apple's perspective, was to sort of guarantee a baseline of quality. And it's like the opposite yeah. has happened. And, I mean, and and to be fair, like, it kind of never has done that. Like, even on the iPhone from day one, like, you had these, you know, crappy, like, fart apps and stuff, and you're like, oh, I guess... I guess this isn't actually going to be a quality right. thing, more of just like a, a kind of right. safety thing. Um, but also, like, and, and you know, in Apple's defense, also, like, I think one of the reasons maybe they aren't going to clamp down on this is that I'm not sure that they're in a a position of power to do that on the Apple TV. Right. Like, if Amazon and YouTube, especially, I mean, Amazon, you know, they they did without Amazon for a while, and they could keep doing that if they wanted to. But like, if YouTube decides they don't want to support the Apple TV anymore. That's a much bigger problem for the Apple TV than it is for YouTube, and and because the Apple TV just doesn't have enough market share and power in the industry to be able to really piss off one of the most important video providers. Like they just they really can't do that. Like I don't think it's I don't think it's strong enough. I don't think it's in a strong enough negotiating position. So maybe Apple did actually apply pressure to Amazon and to YouTube to say like, Hey, you, you got to make your app a little more native. And maybe they just right. said no. And like, what's Apple going to do? Reject their apps. <laughs> like that's not going to happen for these services. So it's, it's kind of a, it, it's kind of a, it's a problem that maybe Apple did try to solve and they just can't. Um, how, how are we doing on time? I think we're, I think we're, I think we're plenty long. 
I think we're probably done. <laughs> I'm gonna say a little, that. A long, I'm gonna say that. I'm gonna say one thing. I just wanted to touch upon. I just wanted to touch upon <laughs> one more the thing. one more thing. And I did want to touch. I, I it was it was one of those funny things. I feel like lately. I just feel like I don't know. Last few months or so, more than usual. As I listen to ATP, I've been more decidedly and consistently on Syracuse's side on a lot of points. And I, you know, it's, you know, I should have him on the show too. But uh, he hasn't been on in a while. Um. But you had one where you started talking about that you never really used a to-do app or a task tracker or whatever you want to call it. And to me, that's part of the problem with the whole categories. I don't even know what to call them. But that you settled on things recently. Um, uh, what's Who's the company behind that? Is that the Soul Men? Culture, Culture Code. code. Um, and that's the app I use too, but I still don't put everything in it. Um, and some of the stuff you said, I was like, yes. Like you said, like you, in general, even though things does have an inbox, you don't like apps, to-do apps that have like an inbox. Because where the hell is that? Where Where's inbox? I, I, I don't want an inbox because it's like inbox means I'm going to have to do work later to put it where it's supposed to go. And you, I, I was like, yes. Yeah, like, I think it comes out of the GTD uh, model, I think. But but like it's like I don't like I don't want to practice GTD. And so the more a task manager can let me not do that, right. the, the more the better we're going to get a, along. The, things has always had this, and I've it, and it's always had like the eye for UI design. It's always been a pretty neat looking app on Mac and iOS. Um, but it's always had this built in thing where there's by you can't even get rid of them. But there's an inbox, there's a today box. Uh, now I get that. I get today. Today I get that makes sense. <laughs> Right, <laughs> things I want to do today. Then there's upcoming, anytime, and someday. I'm I'm already I I use things. Things is what I've settled upon because after years of wandering back and forth between various apps and hating all of them even worse, things is the one I hate the least. But I still it just bothers me even though I never use upcoming, anytime, or someday that they're there. I just hate that they're there. Well, I'll tell you what for me. What made things click for me, and is and again, I still wish that there was some like checkbox option to just not use the inbox ever. Um, but so the inbox is like you know it, the inbox is basically considered a project, like semantically, like in the way it stores things. And what clicked for me is that you can assign tasks to no project. And if you if you if you make everything no project, and, and on the Mac there's even an option. For the the quick entry window, that when you hit uh, con, uh, Command T or whatever, or whatever your map is for that, like there's a there's an option for quick entry things to default to no project instead of inbox. But if you make everything that you create a no project entry, then your home screen can be the anytime tab. Hmm. And so that's the way I use the app is I'm always viewing the anytime tab unless I'm like diving into a project details. But for the most part, I'm looking at the anytime tag. So that way, anything that is rated for today, it gets a little star next to it. So it stands out so I can see it easily. Uh, but otherwise, I'm looking at, you know, a list of things that are either either, you know, set for today or sometime in the past or have no due date. So like things that are in the future are still hidden. Things that are in someday are hidden, and it shows a nice overview of active items in my projects right right below the the stuff on top, which is the no project stuff. It is it, like for things to be closer to perfect for me. All I basically want 
is for the inbox to not exist and for all new tasks created by any means that don't specify a project to default to no project instead of hmm. inbox. I guess I use it in a very different way. I use it where I just pretend that inbox is instead of being called. I just pretend it as it, it doesn't have that name. That it's just like that's just like everything. It's just like my like all music, you know, in in iTunes. Like, yeah, yeah. But but then the, the, the problem there is then like you don't you can't really see anything you've assigned to a project. Like like what I want is like one screen to be like my overview for mm. right now. And that's what the anytime thing gives me if you tag everything as no project that isn't in one rather than using inbox as the I'll have default to play project. With the way I've gotten around that is that I'm either doing a project that's a multi-step thing uh, and that it deserves to be made a proper project and that's like a separate thing or it's just like a task like I have one here called dentist. You know, I haven't had a dentist appointment in a while. So that's that's in there. Um, and I just keep it all. I just keep everything in the inbox. And it's just a place where I'm not going to forget it. And then every once in a while, I just go through and drag a couple of them to today. And then I have a nice little thing that I can make a small window out of with like four or five things that I can reasonably do. Yeah. It's a... Yeah. I mean, to me, like, it's... What do you... It, it's, a, it's a hard problem yeah. to solve with these with to-do apps because, like, it, it, you're trying... I said this on ATP too. Like, you're trying to basically codify people's mental systems like their mental models for how they want things to be done and everyone wants it to be yeah. done differently like it, that's why like it, it's really hard for anybody to ever be more than like 70 percent satisfied with their to-do app <laughs> and that's why people like try different ones and are oftentimes just kind of bounce between them be, and, and and like it isn't the fault of the apps like it isn't that everyone who designs to-do apps is an idiot it's that it's a it's it's not really a generalizable problem. Like the only way the only way you can really get to have a to do app that is perfect for the way you want to do things is usually to just write your own, which is probably why there's so damn yeah. many of them. <laughs> there's a couple of categories of apps like this, like notes apps and calendar apps and contact or address book apps, whatever you want to call the category. And people have strong opinions about them and people have strong opinions about the system ones or the Microsoft ones or whatever. And, and, or email clients probably qualifies as this too, right? The sort of app that's sort of like, oh, everybody needs something like this. But the, the, I don't know, like I said, are they, what do you think of things as, as a task manager, a to do app, a reminder app? I just call this whole thing to-do to do apps, and I, and I don't know if that's... I feel like yeah. it's the one that is the least... It's the least uh, naturally... Here's a, here's the natural way to do it. And like you said, it's the one that is the most dependent on your everybody's unique, weird mental model of how am I going to... You know, what am I going to do today? And how do I think... How do yeah, I exactly. think of tasks and to-dos and stuff? Whereas, like, the basic concept of an address book is kind of well-defined and you're just sort of making an efficient way to access ones that are already there, do things with the ones that are already there, like send an email from the contact based on the email that's already there and how to create a new one. Whereas the task management thing, like where's the division between projects and items and notes within items is also mushy. It's so dissatisfying. Yeah, and, and it's it's just, it's so hard to 
accommodate what so many people want. Like a lot of people want something that lets them practice GTD. Right. A lot of people want something that is GTD like, but not quite GTD. A lot of people want some other methodology. Like there's so many different like methodologies of how you're supposed to manage things that you need to do. Um, and they change like every few years, a new one comes out that right. people want to try and, or want to practice. And, and it's, just, it's again, it's just, it's a really hard problem to generalize into uh, you know, a, a sellable product that can sell to anywhere, anywhere near a decent number of people to justify the pretty large amount of work that these things take to actually like be nice apps available on all of the platforms yeah. and, and things like that. So it's 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 a tough problem. Things is pretty yeah. good, so I'm yeah. I'm happy with it. It's it's, it's it, again, it's like an, it isn't like a perfect fit, but it's close enough and it's better than the other ones for so, me. So true there, story. There Vesper started out as a to do app. Yeah, actually, it, this is when, when me and Koi Vin took yeah, the train yeah. to yes, visit you. Yeah. To... <laughs> I forgot that you knew that. I forgot about that. We talked about doing that yeah. together. <laughs> and it even started out as a two-app yeah, yeah. with me and Brent and Dave. And then because of reasons like this, we were like, you know what? This would be a lot easier, and it'd still be useful as a notes app. <laughs> and we would eliminate all of these <laughs> uh, very tricky, hard-to-solve problems. So the other thing, too, is that this is also the main reason why I still carry around like a little pocket-sized notebook, usually Field Notes brand in my back pocket, is on a daily basis for, quote-unquote, today, I just, my quote-unquote system is to open up a new two-page spread in a notebook, write the date at the top on the left side, write anything truly important on that left side, and anything else on the right side. And every day I just turn a new page and I'll look back on the previous page and see if I forgot anything important. And if I did, write it down again on the new page. <laughs> That's a little too manual. It is very me. manual. And the you know, <laughs> benefit to the manual nature and the cheat, the lazy thing I do is some days if I haven't been busy, I'll just use the, I won't start a new page. I'll just work on yesterday's until I've, it looks like a mess because I've crossed stuff off. But the advantage to rewriting it is it's a little bit of an anti-procrastination hack where it's like, maybe instead of writing this down again, I should just do it. <laughs> you know, like call the dentist. Like, rather than... Uh, the funny thing is, like, I think you actually might be practicing some rudimentary form of GTD I might there. be. I don't know. <laughs> if you call that a review, I, I don't know. I'm not, I, I haven't read the book, yeah. but I think that might be part of it. <laughs> yeah. But that's why I've always done it. Anyway, I thought it was interesting to hear you talk about it. It's such a weird uh, software problem. It's, it feels to me, the reason it, I, it feels to me like the one that software should be able to do better than any paper system compared to all these other things, like an address, like a Rolodex or a, a paper calendar or whatever. But I think in truth, it's actually the one that software is the least better than doing it on paper then. Yeah, because, you know, software has a lot of flexibility in what it can allow you to do. Like you can, for instance, like you can move stuff around much more easily. You can index where things are. You can you can have the concept of like tags where you can have an entry show up in multiple places automatically uh, where, you know, those things are hard to do with paper. But the problem is with software, like as soon as you codify anything into software – you are by nature excluding other things, other ways you could be doing it or other things you could do with it. Whereas the paper, you can it accommodates whatever system you want to do as long as what you want to do can be represented in the analog world. Right. Like it accommodates that. You can and you can change it and you can make little exceptions. You can like, you know, draw an arrow between this thing and this other thing, or you can draw kind of sideways and explain this in a way. And like 
it, software never has that kind of flexibility. It has other types of flexibility, like like you know, moving and copying and syncing and right. tagging and things like that. But the, the like the way the way you lay out your own thoughts, it's very hard to have software yep. offer the kind of flexibility that actually that people actually yep. want. Uh, yeah, and I think that's the best way to put it. And we can wrap up with that. But that's that is the problem: is that this app category to do apps is trying to map your thoughts in a way that other things aren't right. The model for things in, for me that I want to do is mostly thoughts, thoughts I want to complete. Whereas, you know, a calendar event, I I know what that is. That actually maps very well to a computer data structure and thoughts really don't, (laughs) at least my thoughts don't. Anyway, Marco Arma, thank you for your time. This is, it's long, it's way too long. It's always too long when you're on. That's probably why I should have you on more frequently. <laughs> that's if I had you on more frequently, maybe we would <laughs> yeah, you be can. <laughs> Although I have Ben Thompson on a little bit more frequency, and he tends to, to keep my attention long too. Um, I'm just glad that I believe I have now finally passed Craig Federighi in the number of appearances oh, on the show. Well, that's that's a good benchmark. I think we were tied he before. Up quick. He was on a couple times <laughs> last year. He did, yeah. yeah. That, exactly. Um, I want to thank our sponsors, a new sponsor, Trace Pontas. Uh, coffee maker. Uh, I'd be interested. You, you, there's a little bit of time travel involved where uh, I don't know yet, but you'll know. You know by the time you hear me thanking them what I think of their coffee. Uh, Eero, makers of uh, very, very, very good, very easy to set up Wi-Fi equipment and Squarespace where you go to set up a new website. People can. It, I can't believe there's anybody listening to this show who doesn't know that Marco Arment does a podcast called ATP with John Syracuse and uh, uh, Casey Liss at atp.fm. And most of you are probably listening to it. In fact, I'm almost nearly 100% certain that a majority of you are listening to it using Marco's uh, podcast app Overcast, which is also, I believe, an FM domain, right? Overcast.fm? Mm-hmm. That's right. The wonderful, expensive uh, Federated States of Micronesia uh, domain name. And if we want to throw in an extra, an extra um, uh, shout out, we could. Uh, I just saw tonight before we started recording that uh, your wife Tiff has a new podcast of her own with uh, uh, Mike Hurley, right? A video game podcast. What's it called? Yep, it's called Playing for Fun. It's on the Relay FM network, and it's it's nice. It, it's a great take on on games. It's basically like. Only the fun right. stuff, only the positive stuff, like just games that they just love, not getting into like, you know, criticism, yeah. critiques, like industry discussions, like just just fun, just enjoying a fun game. Like it's it's a great refreshing take. And I listened to the first episode today and when it came out and it's just, it's really great. I, I'm a little bit biased, but it's it's pretty you know great. that Mike Hurley, you know, he's a big phony, right? <laughs> you know, he doesn't need you know, the British yeah. accent fake. He grew up in Tennessee. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's honest to, that, that honest to God right. truth. I mean, he comes across as a nice, <laughs> luck, nice enough fellow, but it, he's a big phony. I also uh, I, I, I promoted these on ATP this week, and I want to promote them here too. Two awesome podcasts. One of them is uh, called The Menu Bar. It's a new uh, podcast that has some really insightful criticism and, and thought thought-provoking questions about the tech business. Some of it's Apple-focused. Honestly, most of it isn't. And I was actually on it. I, my episode's going to come out, I think, about the same time as this. Um, and, and we talked a little bit about Apple and honestly a lot about a lot of other stuff, Facebook, Twitter, stuff like that. And I think it's pretty good. Um, and then I also wanted to promote the uh, the season just ended of uh, Mark Bramhill's wonderful podcast, um, Welcome to Macintosh. 
and the whole season is great uh it's the second season he's done it's it's in, it's it's like what you'd expect if like something with the like budget and skill and production value of 99 invisible maybe did a show about like mac nerd stuff like that's how good this show is and the last episode just aired and it's about um there's an interview with the founder of iFixit and talking a lot about like you know the problems of e-waste and recycling and stuff and it's very thought-provoking very well done very interesting and the whole season is great so definitely check out the menu bar and welcome uh, to Macintosh. i'm in addition to my wife's awesome new podcast i'm halfway through the menu bar episode with uh bob burroughs and it's it is true i think it's episode two that was controversial was i don't well i'm halfway <laughs> through and i didn't get the controversy I, I i get the impression that uh people inside of apple did not appreciate that very much but i thought it was interesting mm. um, and and you know and again like and i said on atp too like if you're tired of like me complaining about apple this is not that like their critique of apple is very differently done and and in my opinion i think it's more interesting than on than i i don't know bob other than through twitter bob burrow was a uh engineer electrical engineering manager i think he was electrical engineering it seemed like it uh an engineering manager at apple working on the iphone and i guess ipad um I think he started it just after the iPhone was announced. So like, you know, like early 2007 and I f think he was there seven or eight years. Um, some pretty interesting stories. I not surprised <laughs> that it maybe didn't go over so well inside Apple. It doesn't seem like he's setting himself up to return to Apple. Like a lot, a lot of people leave Apple, do something else for three yeah, or four years. It doesn't seem like, <laughs> um, but you know, it, it, I think he's very comfortable with that as well. And, uh, it does not also does not seem to me at least that he's stirring up shit, you know, uh, unnecessarily. It seems to me like he's just being honest and giving his honest opinion and experience, um, uh, you know, but it's unusual because it seems like the the cone of silence from Apple employees generally extends even after they've stopped working for the company. And there's no not not for legal reasons or for job security reasons, but it's just the culture. And you know, so I guess I'm not surprised that didn't go over. Anyway, it's a great it is a great show. And and uh, welcome to Macintosh. I love. I I feel like I don't mention that enough. It's sort of the inverse of the talk show especially this <laughs> rambling three-hour show <laughs> after this mark Bramhill's welcome to macintosh is so tightly edited it is it is absolutely <laughs> a leave you wanting more type show um i've i'm a little behind on this Definitely. season as well um but episodes are often like 20 minutes you can, they're great little small doses they're super super well produced i love the one with uh panic earlier in the season might have been the season opener mm -hmm. anyway you and he gets great interviews yeah. too. Like it, it's usually it's usually an interview show, and it's it's really really good and just produced and and put together so well, and gets great guests and and, and like travels to yeah. different places. Like so, it isn't just like a Skype call with somebody like like you know the way we do our shows. Like it's it's like really a very very yeah. high production value show about nerdy Mac stuff. It's, it's I met awesome. him a couple years ago in person when uh, I hosted um, Rick Tetzelli and Brent. Uh, uh, what's his, I forget his last name. Jeez. Uh, yeah. The becoming yeah. Steve Jobs, uh, um, right. At New York's Apple store. Uh, they, Brent Schlender, uh, were the two co-authors of an excellent book. And I was invited to host them for like an hour long interview at the, I think it was the Soho Apple store. I forget which one it is, whichever one's in Southern Manhattan. And, uh, Mark Bramhill 
I think he was only like 19 at the time. I don't know. He was really young. But he and his dad were doing like a cross-country road trip. And I only announced it on Daring Fireball like that day because I was kind of worried that – and it actually happened that it was standing room only, you know, even with minimal promotion from by me because it's a limited space. And he and his dad just happened to be driving like cross-country and they were in New York at the time and so made it to the show. <laughs> So just like out of the pure That's coincidence awesome. <laughs> that it was their day on a cross country drive where they were going through New York, they were there, uh, and I'd already been in contact with him over the internet, and I was a f- you know terrific fan of his wonderful work, and I love that somebody as young as he is is enamored with old nineteen eighty four style uh, Macintosh UI design and fonts and stuff like that. Um, so that was terrific. Anyway, that's my Mark Bramhill story. He's a it's really a great, good yeah, kid. It's it's a great and, show. And his his yeah. He reminds I, I, me of Cable Sasser in a way where he's just got like an enthusiasm and an optimism, and it, it makes me feel like more of a misanthrope than I usually feel like. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling he, he's going to have a, a nice long career in this. Oh stuff my god, he he's so talented, it. and he has such a great attention to detail. That's the thing. It's it's he really sweats yeah. every little. You can just tell when you listen to the show. My god, it's really really good. Anyway, Marco Arment. Why'd you keep me up so late? 